Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, step right up, step right up. Tonight, on the Midnight Train Podcast, we swing high off the flying trapeze onto the floor of the most demented show of freaks the world has ever seen. That's right, circus freaks. So find your seat, grab your popcorn, get your cotton candy and prepare to be amazed. Warning, listener discretion is advised. We say things like, why can't I trade places with a dog? I would love to sleep all day, poop in the yard and eat bacon flavored treats. That's it. That's all I want. I want to be a fucking dog. Wood. All aboard. And welcome to season four, episode 14 of the Midnight Train podcast, where we bring the dark to light. What's that mean? Well, we make fun of and joke about creepy shit while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. I am your host, the conductor of the cryptic, Jonathan Sayer. And with me, always, is the man who likes his coffee like he likes his metal. It's Jeff Butchko. Would that be black? That's <laughs> black. I love my coffee like I like my metal. Usually I like coffee with a lot of sugar and it's a light brown, like a mocha. So is that I, don't, I don't know what kind of metal that would be. <laughs> but hi. Creed. Yeah, <laughs> it's Creed. Yeah. With arms wide open. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, boy. So you doing all right? Yeah, I'm getting over a, a cold. Hey, you're always fucking I sick. Know, it's just, I never get sick. <laughs> See? And then... All of a sudden, I get COVID, and now it's like I'm a sponge to everything. Just getting so, sick all the time. Yeah, it's just like a common cold, just dealing with it, you know. Well, we hope you feel better. Doing the doing. Doing doing what you do. Doing the doing. So now listen, um, you know, we talked about last week about how Moody said he was going to be taking a uh, a break. For a hiatus. Bit. A, a, a sabbatical. Hi- <laughs> and um, I got the strangest voicemail from him yesterday you did yeah and i don't know man i think there's something else going on i mean and and when you listen to the voicemail i mean he obviously says something that's going on but it's just i don't know i think things are a lot different than than what we uh are being led to believe well let's let's hear and dissect it you got that all right all right here we go john my dude first of all he never says my dude i know that's suspicious. That's, that's, that's for, I've never heard him once say, my dude. Oh, boy. Do you think he's held at gunpoint somewhere? It, I don't, does it sound like he's... That's like a cry for help. In, tr- in a traumatic situation right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay, let's keep going. All right. John, my dude, it's Moody. Look, man, I know that I told you uh, that I needed to take some time off for some family stuff, but I uh, just want to let you know that it's a little more, uh, you know... Let's just call it a little crazier than that. Um, uh, ever since we've been doing all these researches and I've been doing all this stuff on uh, my conspiracy theories, I've been noticing some weird shit happening, bro. I'm uh, seeing a lot of strange people, a lot of strange cars, a lot of weird things going on, man. So uh, I just want to let you know, it's not necessarily family issues. I'm kind of uh, kind of on the lookout right now. I'm kind of laying low. All right, my man. But look. I'm going to keep doing some research. I'm going to keep doing these uh, conspiracies. But uh, 
just letting you know if something happens, man. Shit ain't always as it seems, all right, brother? Uh, I'll, I'll get a hold of you, man. I'll get a hold of you guys. And uh, uh, we'll talk. All right, bye. bye. Sounds like he's in trouble. It sounds like, like yeah, like he's... I wonder if he uh, cracked something that he wasn't supposed to crack. You know, he may have stumbled on the dark web. Oh, boy. Doing research. Oh and boy. maybe there's uh, men in black metal following him around. Men in black metal? Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> they show up. He's like, dude, 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 yeah, dude. just walk behind you, like, yeah. Ryan, what are you doing? <laughs> well, hopefully, you know, uh, hopefully he's okay. He's good. He he says he's gonna, you know, keep in contact with us. So yeah, you know, hopefully, hopefully we hear from him soon. Moody, so. blink twice if you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have a birthday. I want to announce or uh, say happy birthday to Chris McLeod out there. Ooh, happy birthday, happy birthday. He's actually a Patreon producer. How so, old do you think he is? Um, well, he's. He's Canadian, so do they age differently up yeah, there? Yeah, it's like double. So he's at least 45 right now. Okay. So instead of dog years, it's Canadian yeah. years? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, happy birthday. Hey. <laughs> happy That's birthday. It's a boot. <laughs> happy birthday, buddy. And thanks for being a producer. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting everything we do. You're uh, fucking awesome. You are the best. That's right. So you beautiful bunch of dark passengers know that we are just, well, two and a half goofballs and assholes that love history and can't get enough of the mysterious we want you all to know how much it means to us that you're listening to our goofy asses at this moment. Your reviews and support really do make all the hard work worthwhile. In saying that, please stop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and give us a five-star review, please, if you can. It helps for some reason. Uh, we have no idea why. I have no doubt. Exactly. Ooh, chainsaw hot in the mix. <laughs> a little, little warm there, Chainsaw. Needs more snare in his headphones. Yeah, a little warm there. But as you may or may not know, you know, we're not doctors. Jeff, I don't know if you knew that or not. I mean, we can be. We can try. Yeah, you can go on the internet and like take like a five-minute test and get a certificate mailed to you. Can you? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. You uh, can leave any review you guys would like. I mean, anything whatsoever. You can you can just simply leave, you know, something like, uh, let's see, where's Moody? Let's do haikus. Let's do a hashtag, where's Moody? <laughs> oh, yeah, we could do that. Like conspiracies of where he is. Yeah, let's find, let's, let's, where's Moody? I like this. And maybe he can let us know via social media, like where he's at. And where where's, in where... the world <laughs> is Adam Moody? Do, do, do. <laughs> Did you? That was Carmen San Diego, but I had to, you know, I had to spread out the word. Adam Moody, do, do, do. Adam Moody, do, do, do. Adam Moody, do. So, yeah, leave us a review out there. Hashtag, where's Moody? Uh, you can also find us on Spotify, uh, of course, and iHeartRadio by typing the Midnight Train Podcast in their search bar and clicking the follow button. You'll then get each episode as they're released. And Patreon subscribers um, just received a Day the Music Died bonus on the one and only Marvin Gaye, which uh, was a pretty fun episode to do. Learned a lot. Wow. Speaking of R.I.P. Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, that's so sad. That's crazy, man. He's one of the best guitarists ever known, ever been on this earth yeah it's know? very sad very very sad um i was a huge fan and uh i will say and it sucks that you know obviously that anyone passing away but him dying he had throat cancer yeah i guess he was fighting but then mtv classic i guess is i think that's the station decided to play um van halen for like 24 or 48 hours in a row right there's an mtv classic yeah I haven't had cable TV in like 10 years. So. Yeah, we, we play it at the, at the bar. Oh, okay. We have to have it on. Yeah, we just listened to it on the thing. Anyway, they played um, Van Halen yeah. for 24 hours, I think, something like that. Did, 48 uh, hours. Did David Lee Ross steal all the sunshine the whole time? No, they played the, the same five songs the entire time. Oh, really? For like 48 hours, dude. They've got like 113 songs I know. in their catalog. I know. 
customers are like, dude, if I hear jump one more fucking, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. They play Panama over and over because that's my favorite. Uh, I believe so. I believe they play Panama. Just because of Seth Rogen and Bill Hader and Super Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're in the cop oh, yeah. car. That's like, you know, great movie. Yeah, yeah. Great good movie. stuff. If you, do, if you have not seen that movie, go see it. It's very good. And then, uh, oh, sorry, it's early in the morning, folks. I know. We're going to start coffee for the, uh, the drink, the toast. Yeah. Um, so on that, talking about Panama, my wife told me the other day that she used to think it was called Marilyn Monroe. They said Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Are you serious? That's a stretch. If you listen to it, it sounds pretty close. Wow. I'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah, you have to listen to it. So anyway, if you guys want to sign up to uh, our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast. And uh, you can check it out and get all kinds of cool stuff. All right. Enough of my blabbering here. We've got a hell of a show. This one's going to be fun. I'm oh, yeah. super excited about it. So let's turn on the lights, adjust our seats, grab a drink. Let's get spooky. But first, here's a toast to all you beautiful motherfuckers. So we like to play those guys a lot. That's Here Come the Mummies, and especially around Halloween time. You know, we're, we're oh, big yeah. fans of those guys. They're oh, the, the best mummies. live show you'd ever go see. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, and, we've talked about it several times on the show, but they, they all dress as mummies, and they all come out marching, and it's just, it's a great, and they grunt. They stay in character the whole time. <laughs> yeah, so like, you, you talk catch to them backstage, yeah. they're just, yeah. you're like, hey, man, you guys are awesome. We're like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Super cool. So, yeah, we're talking about Circus Freaks sideshows and sideshow performers and all that stuff today so oh man this is going to be a doozy i'm super excited about it so are there going to be uh visual references yes we'll be posting all kinds of stuff up on uh social media and our our um on the uh website as well as the show notes for this perfect so you guys will be able to see all these crazy kooky characters it'll be, it'll be awesome so first and foremost the one and only jar jar jarge Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks? He's a circus freak? I mean, no. I guess. George Carlin, the greatest, one of the greatest comedians of all time, says, when you're born, you get a ticket to the freak show. When you're born in America, you get a front row seat. Or if you go to Walmart. Well, same thing. Yeah. yeah it's the same thing. So the freak show, or side show, rose to prominence in 16th century England. For centuries, cultures around the world had interpreted se uh, severe physical deformities as bad omens or evidence that evil spirits were present. By the late uh, 1500s, these stigmas had translated into public curiosity. You so know, that good old human instinct of, <laughs> hey, he doesn't look like us. Something's wrong. Right. Burn him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's the devil. Yeah. The devil. So businessmen scouted people with abnormalities, swooped them up, and shuttled them throughout Europe, charging small fees for viewing. One of the earliest recorded freaks of this era was Lazarus Colorado, an otherwise strapping Italian whose brother, uh, Johannes, or Johannes, protruded upside down from his chest wait what he's, yeah he's upside down conjoined twins oh yeah the conjoined tw uh, twins uh, uh, let's see um, both fascinated and horrified the general public and the duo even made an appearance before king charles the first in early 1640s castigated from uh, uh from society people like lazarus capitalized on their uh, unique conditions to make a little cash of course even if it meant being made into a public spectacle 
Whether it was a person with dwarfism acting as a jester, or a clown for an individual uh, monarch, or a person with a unique physical impairment displaying her body for the eyes of a curious and gawking public. Freaking exploiting the uh, perceived uh, peculiarities of your own body for an audience was a means of support for some disabled people who might otherwise have died or struggled to survive. Hmm. So they went freaking is what it was called back in the day. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. So, but until the uh, 19th century, freak shows catered to relatively small crowds and didn't yield particularly, per- I hate that fucking word. Particularly, that's a tough one to say. <laughs> particularly, there it is, healthy profits for showmen or performers. It was in the mid-19th and earliest, uh, earliest, <laughs> it's earliest in the morning, I tell you that, early 20th <laughs> centuries that freak shows had become a viable commercial enterprise in England and the United States alike. America and England both had men who would come into prominence by employing or exploiting, depending on whom you talk to, these types of folks for prop uh, for profit purposes. They were like the pimps of the freaks. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is yeah. so weird. But yeah. How much you make? Two, oh. two, two pence, sir. You give me half. Get <laughs> right. your ass back out there. You get your little freak ass out there. <laughs> Keep my pimp hand strong. In England, it was a man by the name of Tom Norman. Tom Norman was born on uh, May 7th, 1860 in Dallington, Sussex. A day after my birthday. Aw, oh, happy birthday. So me and this dude, are we have a lot in common. Let's hope not. Um, and was the eldest of 17 children. That's me too. Oh my God, that's a lot of kids. Yeah. Holy shit. Can you imagine that poor mom? No. 17 kids. Yeah. I mean, we would look at stuff in history and say that like five, six, seven, even 10, you know, back in the day was a lot. 17 that's a lot. That's more than like your your immediate family. That's more. In your regular family. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of, holy shit. I'd like to know if people that are listening right now. What have, the hell kind of job did the dad do? He was a promoter. Oh, no, no. That'd be his father. His, yeah. yeah shit, who knows? Jeez. Well, his real name was Noakes and his father, Thomas, oh, there you go, go, was a butcher who resided at the manor house no in Dallington. You can't raise 17 kids off of being a butcher. But back then, could you? Unless he was butchering people and taking their money. The kids. <laughs> <laughs> I have to create more kids for more meat. Oh, Dad, we got to eat pig again. <laughs> Long pig. Now shut up. <laughs> According to his autobiography, he left home at the age of 14 to seek fame and fortune on the road. And before long, he had been uh, he had found employment as a butcher's assistant in London. See, that's the secret. They kicked them all out by the age of 14. That 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 is the that How should nice be that? the secret. That should be like a thing now. Yeah. You're 14, get the fuck out. Hell yeah. Get a job, Save four years. That would be awesome. Wouldn't it? Oh, man. Hey, you're 14, kid. Good luck. Here's your backpack. (laughs) (laughs) I threw a $5 bill in there. Yeah, right. These kids nowadays, they wouldn't be able to handle it at 14. Yeah. They live here till they're, you know, 44. Right. So uh, Tom first became involved in show business a year later when he went into partnership with a showman who had a penny gaff shop in Islington exhibiting, um, oh, man. Mille Electra. Okay. Yeah. However, yeah. Is as, that Carmen Electra's uh, relative? I, I don't know. He didn't put, I don't have a definition of with Mille, Mille Electra. Hold on. I got to look this up. Well, he is on the run. So he may have been running from some CIA, you know, while he was writing this. Maybe that's how it got botched. I'm, I'm looking at Just a theory. Fast. Totally looking this up because Moody fucking didn't put that in. He put some weird ass <laughs> word in there. <laughs> Uh, it it's an opera. There you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So there you go. It's a little theater exhibiting 
an opera. However, as is often the case with Tom Norman, the facts are difficult to piece together from the legend and the first record of that we have for a showman called Norman from this time can be traced to the Agricultural Hall in Islington, the venue for the World's Fair. Okay. Okay. All right. Some of the showmen on view that day included the famous Tommy Dodd and his wife, the smallest people in the world, and a giant boy, um, <clears throat> excuse me, age 17. Other showmen presenting attractions were William's Ghost Show, Shittock and Testo's Dog, and Monkey Circus, and Mander's huge collection of wild beasts. Sounds amazing. It does sound awesome. However, both the Era newspaper report and the handbill for the event note um, note the presence of Norman's performing fishes, which reputedly could not only talk, but also play the piano forte. The fish could? <laughs> the fish could. That's fucking awesome. And Norman's French artillery giant horse. All right. In his autobiography, which was incomplete before his death in 1930, Norman states that he was 15 when he first appeared at the World's Fair. Therefore, the Norman uh, mentioned, the Norman mentioned could either have been a showman whose name uh, whose name Tom Noakes went on to use, or he was actually 13 years old when he first left home. So basically there's little discrepancy on whether or not this is actually Noakes or if this is somebody else. But right. for the most part, that's what the records go back and say. All right. By the 1870s, the young aspiring showman had been involved in a number of careers, including exhibiting Eliza Jenkins, the skeleton woman, a popular novelty show at the time, the balloon headed baby. Was she just like, what is that anorexic where they weigh like, 80 pounds probably she's probably just real skinny yeah yeah and now the skeleton lady yeah. she's like can i have a candy bar please <laughs> like, i'm just really hungry i haven't eaten uh, there's also the balloon-headed baby which sounds really fucked up yeah that zika virus <laughs> yeah and a whole range of freak show attractions as he stated in his autobiography quote but you could indeed exhibit anything in those days. Yes, anything from a needle to an anchor, a flea to an elephant, a bloater, you could exhibit as a whale. It was not the show, it was the tale that you told, in, in quote. Wow, he really sold it, huh? Yeah, it's the tale you told. Perhaps one of the more gruesome shows he was involved with was the woman who bit live rats' heads off. Okay, she must have been an Osborne. <laughs> it's Aussie! <laughs> in his autobiography, Tom Norman describes the act as uh, the most gruesome he had ever seen. Quoke, quoke. God, I can't even talk to the quoke. <laughs> quoke. <laughs> so, quote, Dick Baker's wife, who used to be with me and gave, I think now, the most repulsive performance that I have ever, uh, that I have ever had seen during the whole of my long career. It consisted of Mrs. Baker putting her naked hand into a cage fetch out a live rat and proceed to bite its head off, end quote. Ugh. There's no way she had diseases. Yeah, no, she was completely yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. You got to think about it, like back in the day, that was really like if you were if you were sitting in that that circus tent when that happened, you would be like, what? The fuck? You know what I mean? Because that's just unmoral. It's it's for back then. I think now I'd be that way. You know what I mean? Uh, if you saw someone I mean, biting off, a, nothing's the, much shocking anymore. I would though. think it's fake, though. Yeah, I think it's like a viral attempt to go right. YouTube or something. You know right. what I mean? But back then, before all this stuff, that would be crazy. I mean, I I could just imagine sitting there. You're sitting there with your family and the kids, and they're like, you know, she grabs a rat, and they're like, oh, what's she going to do? And oh, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, the kids are screaming like, <laughs> Mommy! Yeah. The rat's probably twitching and squealing. Like, uh, that know. sounds disturbing. Yeah. Um Quote, more than once have I seen a number of either sex of the audience fall forward in faint during this extraordinary performance. There you go. Quote. Yeah, I could see that happening. 
Tom Norman's ability to tell the tale was the scene of one of his greatest compliments when he, in 1982 he was performing at the Royal Agricultural Hall, unaware that the great showman P.T. Barnum, yeah, and we'll get it's, to talk uh, about him a little circus bit. circus guy, huh? Yep. Was in the audience, Tom informed the crowd that none other than the greatest showman on earth had booked the show for its entire run. Upon meeting Tom Norman, Barnum pointed to the largest silver Albert chain, um, which he wore and said, Silver King, eh? So basically, <laughs> he's got a big old chain on him. Walks like up to, yeah, walked up to him like, yeah, what's up, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> Despite being found out, Tom Norman took this as a compliment. And from then on, he became known as the Silver King. Uh-huh. So that's how he got that. That's pretty cool. Throughout the 1880s, his fame as a showman grew, and by 1883, he had 13 penny gaff shops throughout London, including locations such as Whitechapel. Um, Whitechapel, which... What is a penny gaff shop? Uh, it's a like a pay a penny to see something. Oh, like a peep show thing kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's kind of like this is where they had all the people and stuff like that. So it's okay. just a penny. It's a penny... Like yeah. they had at the truck stops when we were on tour, and you put a penny in the curtain, and the truck driver comes out, and he's in his underwear. He's like, you know, candy. I don't think I saw that one. Oh, you didn't? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't either. I'm just I heard about it. Okay. So, so such as uh, Whitechapel, um, Hammersmith, Croydon, and Edgware Road. He still continued to travel with his shows, and Norman's uh, Grand Panorama was a highlight of the Christmas Fair for the 1980 or 1883 to 84 season in Islington. It was at this time that Norman came into contact with Joseph Merrick. Through a showman called George Hitchcock. Hitch, Hitchcock. Hitchcock? Hitchcock? <laughs> Sounded like a, a hiccup what? during that. Hitchcock, who proposed that Norman took over the London management of the Elephant Man. I've heard this is like a famous one. Yeah. This episode. They had a movie about this. Yeah, they did. They actually made a couple of movies about it. An old black and white movie. That though. was uh, Anthony Hopkins, if I'm not mistaken. Or was it Anthony Hopkins? Or was it a newer one? No, no, no. It was like one of his very first roles, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? Yeah. But I could be completely wrong. Me, uh, yeah, won't you? We'll do the Google. Me, uh, see, see what it says. So this episode of Norman's life is shrouded in controversy as Sir Frederick Treves, the surgeon who reputedly or reputedly uh, rescued Joseph Merrick or John, as he calls him, uh, blackened the character of Norman in his autobiography published in 1923. You are correct. It was a 1980 adaptation. Okay, but it was Anthony Hopkins where he was very young. Yeah, and, he and was, John Hurt. Yeah. Huh. The only one I know of is the the black and white one from the fifties or whatever. See that? Drop some drop some movie knowledge on that one. Damn, good thing we're not playing trivia today. I know, because <laughs> I'd forget. <laughs> so there are different accounts um, of the way Merrick was treated by Norman. Trees maintains that he was treated poorly by Norman and simply exploited. There are others who claim that Norman treated Merrick extremely well and that Merrick was never healthier or happier than with Norman. The Elephant Man was managed by Tom for only a few months, and after the London shop was closed by the police, Joseph Merrick was taken back to the consortium of Leicester businessmen and placed in the hands of Sam Roper, a traveling showman. So let's explain. They're to just the, passing this guy around. Yeah. Let's yeah. explain to the listeners what exactly is the Elephant Man and why he is called the Elephant Man. Um, we're going to get into it. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 we'll definitely get into that for sure. Um, But what was the other movie too? Mask? Yeah. Well, um... What's his name? Rocky. Yeah, Rocky. Ro- yeah, there was Rocky in that one. And when then, he uh, had the elephantitis thing going yeah, on. Cher was his mom. Yeah, Cher. <laughs> Do you believe your face is fucked up? What's wrong, Rocky? <laughs> you want a candy bar? Ah, that's funny. So they're, they're passing this guy around all over the place. Tom Norman's career continued after the Elephant Man, and over the next 10 years, uh, he became involved with uh, managing a troop of midgets. 
exhibiting the famous man in a trance show at Nottingham Goose Fair. Uh, Marianne Bevan, the world's ugliest woman. Oh, boy. <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> so fucked up. You know how bad? Oh, man. I don't even want to get into that. That's just fucked up. John Chambers, the armless carpenter. And Leonine, the lion-faced lady. In January 1893, the following advertisement appeared in the Era newspaper and seems to imply that Tom was thinking of leaving England for the World's Fair, which was being held in Chicago. The advertisement appeared for the following weeks, and uh, although no details are available as to their final outcome, they do give us a glimpse into the type of shows Tom Norman was exhibiting at the time. So, I I have to ask, it's got to come up in the notes, <clears throat> is Moody's great-great-grandmother in this? <laughs> the bearded lady? What's that mustache? You need to take a tinkle. We'll be right back after this message. Well, it's time to return back to the show. I'm glad you stayed and didn't leave. So we're going to take our doily and we're going to put a little dabadooya of glue on the side. And then we're going to connect both ends. And then you have a beautiful tapestry. This is for your dinner guests when they arrive. They'll say, my lord, where did you get that tapestry? <laughs> we, were, we were just talking about selling out. so Yeah, we were in, in the break. We were talking about uh, like selling out. And so Jeff said we have to do a, a podcast on arts and crafts. Arts and crafts. Could you imagine that? Like doing, a bunch of like old, ladies. old ladies with the big glasses, you know, driving home from Joanne Fabrics in their car. And they got this plane like. And then you're going to take the popsicle stick <laughs> and mix it in the Kool-Aid. You put it in the freezer and you've got your own popsicles. The grandkids will die for them. My, my word. Or what'd you say? My <laughs> oh, geez. So anyway, <clears throat> this, uh, talk about Tom Norman up here um, and him getting ready to go. And everyone's thinking he's going to go to the World's Fair or whatnot. So the advertisement goes like this. Quote, wanted to sell 10-foot living carriage, light, one horse load, already fitted for road, 250 pounds, worth 35 pounds, or 25 pounds, worth 35 pounds. Also, novelty booth, good as new, size 9 foot by 18 foot, with novelty and four new brass lamps with filler and oil drum by Meller and Sons, 4 pounds. Also, piano organ, nearly new, scarcely soiled, 10 tunes by Capra, suit waxworks, or any shop exhibition, seven pounds, worth 18 pounds. Also, two fat paintings, Best on the Road by Leach, size nine foot by 10 foot. Uh, ditto one, same size of Skeleton Girl, all good as new. Also, two other f of, uh, of fats, size six foot by Thornhill, with large case to carry the lot, five pounds, cost 20 pounds. Also, nine foot square booth for performing fleas, with two grand oil paintings for same price. Um, for, for one pound. Also, aerial suspension for child. Fifteen. Fifteen. I, I think it's, is it quid S? The, the, I'm not sure what that is. Also, the largest silver Albert in England made expressly for me. Three pounds. Cost six pounds. The whole of the above to be sold together or separate can be seen anytime. Reason? I am leaving for Chicago. Apply any morning before 12 to Tom Norman, Silver King, Pierce's Temperance Hotel, Elephant and Castle Southeast, end quote. Must meet in public place. <laughs> right. So he basically put this ad out trying to get rid of all his shit because he's, like, he's wanting to go abroad, right? Craigslist before it was Craigslist. Right. So in 1896, Tom met and married Amy Rayner. <laughs> Could you imagine? 
<laughs> oh shit. He gets what would it be back then? A telegram, probably? Yeah, pro I would assume, yeah. So he gets a telegram, it's like, hey, how much for the harness for the kid? <laughs> Just so wait, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> you wait. know, the harness. Could it hold an adult? Why do you why do you want to No, it's that? for it's for children. <laughs> but if you if you really wanted to, could it hold an adult? Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> In 1896, Tom, uh, Tom met and married Amy Rayner at the Royal Agricultural uh, Hall, and their marriage lasted until his death in 1930. So he was with her the whole time. At that time, Tom was traveling his uh, famous midget show in the ghost show he had bought from John Parker. Their first son, Tom, was born in 1899 and was soon followed by Hilda, Ralph, Jimmy, Nellie, Arthur, Amy, Jack, Daisy, and George. <laughs> now, those are some names. <laughs> but he had a lot of kids, too, man. God, what is with people back then? That's all they did was bump and grind. Uh, I guess. they had no, What else are you going to do? There's no TV. Well, she's pregnant again. Yeah. Well, she's pregnant again. <laughs> and again. Guess what? She's pregnant again. Right. So soon after the birth of his first son, Tom became an auctioneer, and the first show he sold belonged to Fred and George Gennett. His career as an auctioneer prospered in some of the most famous shows he sold included Lord... George Sanger and Frank Bostocks. He advertised in both the era and the showman newspapers as the recognized showman's auctioneer and valuer throughout 1901. So it just became, hey, sold. <laughs> and early clients in 1902 included W.T. Kirkland, who had pretty good at that. Is that your West Virginian? You like that? Out of that? I, know, what, uh, I mean, of course. Sell me this drink right here. Hey, I got a drink of it. I got a drink of it. It's got to do it. I think I'm going to. I have no idea. Five bucks. <laughs> sold, American. <laughs> Um, so, so he worked with a bunch of different people. He instituted the annual showman and travelers auction sales in London, Manchester, and Liverpool from 1903 onwards and negotiated sales for showmen such as Walter Payne, Edwin Lawrence, and many other, uh, others. So he's actually the guy who is selling um, either stuff for the showman and possibly the people in the shows. Yeah. Okay. He's like the guy to know. Right. Yeah. He's the, he's the guy. The guy. The guy. His most famous sale to date um, is in 1905 when he organized the disposal of Lord George Sanger's zoo at Margate. This was followed by what Tom Norman described as the crowning point in my life as regards um, the in, in, to the auctioneering business. And when he was called upon Sanger to auction the whole of his traveling circus effects, the following tribute published, uh, published, published in 1901 demonstrates the esteem in which he was held by the fairground fraternity. Quote, Mr. Norman believes in catering for modern taste, brilliancy, brightness, cleanliness, and order are Tom's strong points, end quote. So he's like the guy. Yeah. All right, this guy's the guy. So Tom Norman continued to travel with his shows and maintained his penny gaff shops in London while basing the auctioneering side of the business at his family home, the Manor House in Dallington. Although Tom did not reveal in his autobiography the reasons for changing his name, he obviously maintained links with his place of birth in order to base this part of his business activities there. All right. We're following this right now. Yes. He's an auctioneer, and he's also got all these sideshows. <clears throat> Excuse me, right? Yes. In the period leading up to the First World War, Tom was now the father of 10 children, nine surviving, and his sons, Tom, Ralph, Jimmy, Arthur, and George, had inherited their father's showmanship. Ralph Van became known as Hal Denver and traveled throughout Europe and America as a Wild West performer. George and Arthur found famous clowns in many of the world's greatest circuses, and Tom and Jim Norman remained in the fairground. So, you know, it's a family affair, you know, yeah. getting them all into it. By 1915, the family were firmly based in Croydon, and Tom was uh, starting to dispose of some of his business concerns when his eldest son, son Tom Jr., enlisted. 
The shops for sale in, uh, included Tom Norman's new exhibition with Waxworks and Novelty Museum and the Croydon Central Auction Rooms. So he's just got all kinds of shit going on here. And his son, obviously, you know, enlisting and whatever. Tom slowly retired from the fairground business, and although he maintained his auctioneering concerns, he mainly concentrated on buying and selling caravans and dealing in horses for circuses and pantomimes. At the end, at the end, uh, after the end of the uh, First World War, Tom became restless again and appeared at the Olympia Circus in 1919 with Phoebe the Strange Girl. Uh oh! And exhibited it at uh, Birmingham and Dreamland Margate in 1921. Tom also returned to the venue where he had first started the Royal Agricultural Hall and worked there throughout the 1920s, although he was living in semi-retirement at the family base in Beddington Lane, Croydon. All right. So you couldn't let go of the spotlight. <clears throat> he just can't let go. He can't let go of having this whole thing. So Tom Norman left behind a comfortable professional birthright to become one of the leading uh, traveling showmen of his day. The benevolence he showed to his family showmen, his association, association with the newly formed Van Dwellings Association, and his role in the United Kingdom's temperance, eh, United Kingdom Temperance Association, demonstrate the injustice done to his reputation by inaccurate accounts of the Elephant Man. So basically everyone says he's awesome, except some people are like, no, nah, he treated the Elephant Man like shit. Yeah, you like know? an animal. Right. And he died in Croydon on August 24th, 1930, while well, according to his son, George Van Norman, making plans to travel to a large auction show around the country. So this is just what this guy did. Spite all his rage, he was still just a rat in a cage. Correct. He was. So the following tribute was published in the World's Fair. Quote, there are very few showmen who have not met the famous showman's auctioneer, the Silver King. He has been a conspic uh, conspicuous and charismatic figure in our business for the past half a century and has conducted more showman sales than any other auctioneer in the country. During his 50 years with us, he has endeared himself to all sections, from the humblest to the highest. He was a charming personality with a commanding appearance that left a lifetime impression upon anyone that he met. All his life, he has been a showman, and as such, he died. End quote. Wow. So that's England's great showman. All right. That's 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 where it started off back then. You know, and so I think that's actually pretty awesome. Did you know anything about that guy? I did not. Right. And that's where it started. You know, circuses and sideshow like... freaks and stuff like that. So, it, it, like I said, this is England's greatest guy and the man who really helped bring freaks uh, and freak show to prominence there. But as uh, we mentioned earlier, the U.S. had one as well. Dun, and uh, we brought him up a little bit earlier here. And I'm uh, sure you all know who it is. It's good old Phineas Taylor Barnum, better known as P.T. Now, I'm sure most of you know at least a little about him or have at some point as a kid been uh, to a circus with his name somewhere in the title. T. Barnum's Barnum & Bailey Circus. Yep. Some of you uh, younger listeners uh, may have missed out on the joys of this uh, circus, uh, but you may have seen the movie with, uh, with Hugh Jackman, The greatest, the Great Showman. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm pretty sure that's about thanks to, him. Thanks to PETA. What? They shut down all the circuses. Oh, yeah, well, you know, cruelty to animals and all that shit. Yeah, that's kind of fucked up. We're going to take a uh, look at his life now and how he rose to prominence. All right. So P.T. Barnum was born in Bethel, Connecticut, the son of innkeeper Taylor and storekeeper Philo Barnum and his second wife, Irene Taylor. His maternal grandfather, Phineas Taylor, was a Whig legislator, landowner, justice of the peace and lottery schemer who had a great influence on him. Barnum was 15 years old when his father died and the support of his mother and his five sisters and brothers fell largely upon his shoulders. After holding a variety of jobs, he became a publisher of a Danbury, uh, Connecticut weekly newspaper, Herald of Freedom. Arrested three times for libel, <laughs> uh -oh. he enjoyed his first taste of notoriety. Oh man, you can't do that. In uh, 1829, at age 19, Barnum married a 21-year-old Bethel woman, Charity Hallett, who was to bear him four daughters. 
1834, he moved to New York City, where he found his vacation, uh, his vocation, excuse me, as a showman. So he began it then. He began his career as a showman in 1835 when he was 25 with the purchase and exhibition of a blind and almost completely paralyzed slave woman named Joyce Heth, whom an acquaintance was trumpeting around Philadelphia as George Washington's former nurse and 161 years old. What? <laughs> Swear to God. Slavery was already outlawed in New York, but he exploited a loophole which allowed him to lease her for a year for $1,000, borrowing 500 to complete the sale. Heth died in February 1836 at no more than 80 years old. Obviously, she wasn't 161. Yeah. Barnum had worked her for 10 to 12 hours a day, and he hosted a live autopsy of her body in a New York saloon where spectators paid 50 cents to see the dead woman cut up as he revealed that she was likely half her purported age. What the fuck? Wow, that guy's like diehard freak show. Yeah. Ho, ho. It was uh, very common for Barnum's acts to be schemes and not altogether true. Barnum was fully aware of the improper ethics behind his business as he said, quote, I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. End quote. <laughs> so whatever it takes. Yeah. During the 1840s, Barnum began his museum, which had a constantly rotating um, act schedule, which included the fat lady, midgets, giants, and other people deemed to be freaks. The museum drew in about 400,000 visitors a year. That's a lot. It's a lot of tickets. For, yeah, I mean, for back then? Yeah. For the 1840s? Shit. But then again, people had like 17 kids, so <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do with all of them, you know? We're going to go to the circus. That's right. So during the 1840s, Barnum began his museum, which had a, uh, oh, like I said, I've already read that part, sorry, the head of 400,000 you know, visitors a year. P.T. Barnum's American Museum was one of the most popular museums in New York City to exhibit freaks. In 1841, Barnum purchased the American Museum, which made freaks the major attraction following mainstream America in the mid-19th century. Barnum was known to advertise aggressively and make up outlandish stories about his exhibits. Of course he did. He's got to sell it. Yeah. The facade of the museum was decorated with uh, bright banners showcasing his attractions and included a band that performed outside. Barnum's American, Music, uh, American Museum also offered multiple attractions that not only entertained but tried to educate and uplift its working class visitors. So he's uh, shooting for the working class guy. Nice. Barnum offered one ticket that guaranteed admission to his lectures, theatrical performances, and an animal menagerie and a glimpse at curiosities both living and dead. One of Barnum's exhibits centered around Charles Sherwood Stratton, the dwarf billed as General Tom Thumb, who was then four years of age but was stated to be 11. Charles had stopped growing after the first six months of his life, at which point he was 25 inches tall and weighed 15 pounds. That's like the one that's an American Horror Story, the yeah. little Indian girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, with heavy coaching and natural talent, the boy was taught to um, imitate people from Hercules to Napoleon. By five, he was drinking wine, and by seven, smoking <laughs> cigars for the public's amusement. Jesus. Oh, man. <laughs> During 1844 to 45, Barnum toured with Tom Thumb in Europe and met Queen Victoria, who was amused and saddened by the little man, and the event was publicly coup, uh, was a publicity coup. Sorry, Barnum said um, Stratton lived handsomely, about $150 a week. When Stratton retired, he lived in the most esteemed neighborhood of New York. He owned a yacht and dressed in the nicest clothing he could buy. Do you want to see a picture of him real quick? Sure. What do we got here? I can turn this. Oh, 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 let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's with uh, P.T. Barnum. Yeah. yeah. We'll make sure we post those pictures up so everyone can see those, too. It looks like he's like a four-year-old. But technically he was. Well, I, I, I know, <laughs> but I mean like the size. Yeah, know? yeah. He's little. Very little. 
Barnum's museum drew large audiences seeking diversion from the conflict. Barnum's most popular and highest grossing act was the tattooed man, George Contentinus. Contentinus? Yeah, well, we'll say that. He claimed to be a Greek Albanian prince raised in a Turkish harem. He had 338 tattoos covering his body. For back then, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Each one was ornate and told a story. His story was that he was on a military expedition, but was captured by native people who gave him the choice of either being chopped up into little pieces or receive full body tattoos. Yeah, you're going to pick the tattoos, I would assume, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, would, I would definitely do that. It this probably wasn't fun how they did it back then. That's probably like the, the rock with the needle just... Yeah. You know, yeah. For hours. Just God. Yeah, that did probably yeah. pretty painful. This process supposedly took three months, and Con- Contentinus was the only hostage who survived. He produced a 23-page book which detailed every aspect of his experience and drew a large crowd. When Contentinus partnered with Barnum, he began to earn more than $1,000 a week, which is uh, $31,000 in 2020 money. So that's pretty good living there just to be a freak. You know what I mean? That's like a cash register worker at Aldi's, I think, right? 31000 a week? Oh, no, I think in a year. <laughs> I'm like, damn. <laughs> We're going to Aldi's. I'm in the wrong business. What the right. fuck? Paper or plastic? Yeah. <laughs> All day. His wealth became so staggering that the New York Times wrote, quote, he wears very handsome diamond rings and other jewelry valued altogether at about $3,000, which is roughly 93000 in today's money, and usually goes armed to protect himself from persons who might attempt to rob him, end quote. Yeah, back then. <laughs> so he's walking around strapped. That's hilarious. Though Contentinus was very fortunate, other freaks were not. Upon his death in 1891, he donated about half of his life earnings to other freaks who Barnum retired in 1865 when his museum burnt to the ground. Though Barnum was and still is criticized for exploitation, he paid the performers fairly handsome sums of money. Some of the acts made the equivalent of what some sports stars make today. Hmm. So between 1842, when he took over the American Museum, and 1868, when he gave it up after the uh, fires twice had all but destroyed it, Barnum's gaudy showmanship enticed 82 million visitors. Among them were Henry and William James, Charles Dickens, and Edward VII, which is wow. pretty awesome, then Prince of Wales, into his halls, and to his other enterprises. Um, So yeah, you know, he's just, he was great. He was a great showman, and he did a bunch of stuff, you know, so, but he did not enter the circus business until he was 60 years old. All right. So he went from having the freak show to going into the circus business because you had to damn, tone it down for retirement. Well, the damn thing burnt down twice and he's like, man, fuck it. Yeah. You know? So he established PT Barnum's grand traveling museum, menagerie, caravan and hippodrome. That's what it's called. Okay. In Delavan, Wisconsin in 1870 with William Cameron Coo. It was a traveling circus menagerie and museum of freaks. It went through various names. Uh, P.T. Barnum's Traveling World's Fair, Great Roman... <laughs> Wait, oh, this is another one. P.T. Barnum's Traveling World's Fair, Great Roman Hippodrome, and Greatest Show on Earth. And P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth and the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, and the Great International Allied Shows United. <laughs> oh, good for you! <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Like it's, it's like when they wrote books back in the day. Yeah. You know what I mean? They had these huge freaking long titles. You the know? flyer was all like feather font, you yeah, know, like just, feather pen. And God, got to get it all just in kept there. Going and going and going and going and going. It takes <laughs> just, you like 10 minutes to read it. Right. Just in case they don't know what it actually is. We're just going to put every word on yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's see here. After an 1881 merger with James Bailey and James uh, L. Hutchinson, soon shortened to all those to Barnum and Bailey's. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Seems there a you lot more, <laughs> a lot easier to get out. This entertainment phenomenon was the first circus to display three rings. 
You know, the Three Ring Circus. The show's first primary attraction was Jumbo, an African elephant that Barnum purchased in 1882 from the London Zoo. The Barnum and Bailey Circus still contain acts similar to his traveling menagerie, including acrobats, freak shows, and General Tom Thumb. Barnum pers uh, persisted in growing the circus in spite of more fires, <laughs> train disasters, and other setbacks, and he was aided by circus professionals who ran the daily operations. He and Bailey split up in 1885, but they came back together in 1888 with the Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth, later Barnum and Bailey Circus, which toured the world. Barnum was one of the first circus owners to move his circus by train on the, on the suggestion of Bailey and other business partners and probably the first to own his own train, given the lack of paved highway, highways. Did you know we have highways? Yeah, that's where the bees go. Oh, OK. That's what I thought. Highways, damn it. In America at the time, this turned out to be a shrewd decision that vastly expanded Barnum's geographical reach. In this new industry, Barnum learned uh, leaned more on the advice of his partners, most of whom were young enough to be his sons. Barnum became known as the Shakespeare of advertising due to his innovative and impressive ideas. What's that mustache? You need to take a tinkle. You'll be right back after this message. This episode of the Midnight Train Podcast is sponsored by Voodoo Vodka. 20 times distilled, made from pure cane sugar and handcrafted right here in Ohio. Vodka can be smooth and voodoo proves it. Drink it straight, chilled, or in your favorite mixed drink. Ask for it wherever you buy your favorite liquors or head over to voodoo.com and subscribe to their mailing list. While you're there, pick up some voodoo merchandise and use the promo code Midnight Train Podcast. All one word. To get 10% off your entire order, that's voodoo, V-O-U-D-O-U-X.com. Promo code Midnight Train Podcast for 10% off. And you can now buy this delicious vodka online. So order some today and drink with us whenever you listen to the show. Voodoo Vodka, it's magic. Well, it's time to return back to the show. I'm glad you stayed and didn't leave. Now you just want to fill up your little egg tray with a dab of do you, okay? You don't need to overflow it. You just want a little bit of color. You want to get the fall festive colors in, like the reds and the oranges, and it's going to just be to die for. People are going to come to your dinner party and say, My God, who made this? It's so beautiful. Jesus Christ. Dude, I'm selling it hard, man. Oh, man. We, we, we're going to be the Midnight Crafts the midnight <laughs> Podcast. The Midnight Crafts. Welcome to the Midnight Crafts Podcast, where today we're going to be putting together a doily package. Uh, a dab of do ya. Specifically designed to entice your guests. You got to channel your inner older lady. <laughs> inner older lady? Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, boy. imagine like you're a joint fabric. Like, this fabric is on sale, and I just... I, it, Touches my heart. <laughs> Got a little bit of that. So, <laughs> now, honey. There you go. There you go. Yeah. We're going to sit here and we're just going to go through and we're going to make all the all the crafts. Now, I told James he can't come in here when we're recording. Yeah, I don't want any, no man in here while we're doing this. I said, you'll get your chicken and dumplings when the time is right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, Barnum went on to write his autobiography and do something interesting. More interested in pub, uh, publicity than profits, he made his biography public domain. This meant that anyone who wanted to publish his biography could do so without having to secure rights for it. This dude was like on top of like the marketing oh, he and was, making money. He was like the business game. He's a brilliant business guy, dude. Wow. In his 81st year, Barnum fell gravely ill. At his request, a New York newspaper published his obituary in advance 
so that he <laughs> so that he might enjoy it. That's amazing. <laughs> Two weeks later, after inquiring about the box office receipts of the circus, Barnum died in his Connecticut mansion. The Times of London echoed the WordPress or the World Press in its final tribute. Quote, he created the metier of showmen on a grandiose scale. He early realized that essential feature of a modern democracy, its readiness to be led to what will amuse and instruct it. His name is a proverb already, and a proverb it will continue. Now that's 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 awesome. Do lived a good life, I guess, huh? Right. Like I mean, just first of all, how they talked back then. Yeah. <laughs> he created the metier of showmen in grandiose scale. Yeah. Like, you know, now it's like he was a bad dude. Yeah, you know? so dumbed down. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the stories for the most part of the two major players in the freak show game. All right. There were more, and maybe we will revisit those guys. And you know how we always do it. We get the nerd stuff out so you guys get a little history on stuff. Yeah, 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 and it's yeah. possible we might do that at a later date. But for now, we are going to move on to what, you know, at least what I want to talk about here and what I think you want to talk about, Jeff. We're going to talk about some of the coolest freaks that there were. First and foremost, Lazarus, Lazarus, Colorado. All right. It's weird how he spells Colorado, too. It's a sweet name. Yeah, Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus. So we mentioned this fellow a little bit earlier, and uh, it was time to bring him back. Born in 1617 in Genoa, Italy, Colorado would exhibit himself all across Europe during his lifetime. Colorado is among the earliest and most extraordinary recorded cases of parasitic twins. We found this description of Lazarus uh, by Danish anatomist. Is it anatomist? Yeah. Thomas Bartholinus. fucking word. Fuck you, Moody. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas Bartholinus. As detailed in the 19th century book, Kirby's Wonderful and Eccentric Museum. All right, so this is the description of him. Quote, I saw, saith Bartholinus, Lazarus, Colorado, the Genoese, first at Copenhagen, after at Basel, when he was 28 years of age, but in both places with amazement. This Lazarus had a little brother growing out of his breast who was in that posture born with him. It's like Quato from Total Recall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's right, what it looks right. like. Yeah. If I mistake not, the bone called... Xiphoidus in both of them grew together. His left foot along, uh, along hung downwards. He had two arms, but only three fingers upon each hand. Some appearance there was of the secret parts. He moved his hands, ears, and lips and had a little beating uh, in the breast. This little brother voids no excrements, but by the mouth, nose, and ears, and is nourished by that which the greater takes. He has distinct animal and vital parts from the greater, since he sleeps, sweats, and moves when the other wakes, rests, and sweats not. Both received their names at the font, uh, at the front, I would assume is what it means. The greater uh, that of Lazarus and the other that of Johannes Baptista. The natural bowels as the liver, spleen, etc. are the same in both. Johannes Baptista hath his eyes for the most part shut. His breath small so that holding a feather at his mouth it scarcely moves. But holding the hand there we find a small and warm breath. His mouth is usually open and wet with spittle. His head is bigger than that of Lazarus, but deformed, his hair hanging down while his face is in an upright posture. Both have beards. That of Baptista is neglected, but that of Lazarus, very neat. Lazarus is of a just stature, a decent body, courteous deportment, and gallantly attired. He covers the body of his brother with his cloak, nor would you think a monster lay within at, within at your first disclosure with him. He seemed always of a constant mind, unless that now and then he was solicitous as as to his end for he feared the death of his brother uh, presaging that when it came to uh, pass jesus he should also expire with the stench and putrefaction of his body and therefore he took greater care of his brother than himself jeez that's that's crazy like 
you imagine carrying that thing around all the time? Oh my God. But then worrying about like, you know, what, what would you do if it died? You, you, it's stuck to you. You can't like, yeah, and you can do about it. You're sharing the same insides. Yeah. That is insane. The doctors are probably like, I, I got nothing. You know, they probably look at it and they're like, yeah, I got nothing. That poor on guy. And my beautiful wife just brought me a cup of coffee. Aww. Say hi. Hi. Hello, Grace. How are you? <laughs> Bye. Like, I'm out of here. Uh, yeah, she's definitely not one to be on the radio <laughs> or on the podcast or anything like that. So, yeah, but thank you for the cup of coffee. That's awesome. So, um, that was that was Lazarus. So he walks around with someone strapped to his chest. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that'd be a rough go at life. Yeah. So let's talk about Tarar. All right, Tarar. It's T A R A R E. Tarar. Tarar. T A R. T A R R A E R. Wait, T A R R A R E. All right. Thank you, Google, for finding that right away. Terrar. 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 Something with tongues. Terrar. Like he's got spoons and. It says the walking manifestation of one of the seven deadly sins prowled the cobbled streets of 18th century Paris, seeking only to indulge his endless hunger. Earlier in life, his dietary needs started out robustly, but were otherwise innocuous. However, things would soon take a sinister turn so far as this overzealous diner was concerned. According to contemporary accounts and uh, existent um, medical records, his uh, quenchless appetite continued growing to the point that his legendary gluttonous gorging caused his ravenous Frenchman, uh, this ravenous Frenchman, to ingest live animals and maraud morgues for sustenance. He was once even suspected of kidnapping and devouring a toddler. <laughs> yeah. Get in my belly. <laughs> the baby. Give me the baby. <laughs> I want your baby. <laughs> so yeah, the guy just insatiable appetite. So the crack team at Ripley's.com was able to speak with a doctor who specializes in science-based nutrition in search of a possible diagnosis. But first, let's do the fat on the life of this legendary cannibal and his strange circumstances of existence. Be warned, this is not for the weak of heart, so you know how we do it here. But if you guys think you can stomach it, well, then, you know, strap on in because we're going to be talking about it this. It is Halloween time. That's right. With a large, lipless mouth stretched wide beyond human regularity and filled with stained teeth, he ate cork stones, entire baskets of apples, one at a time in quick succession, and live animals. His favorite was snakes. For the morbid amusement of repulsed onlookers that were challenged to satiate his seemingly interminable appetite. Like most modern competitive binge eaters, Tarar was uh, diminutive in stature, weighing no more than 100 pounds prior to eating, at least. Despite all of his daily intake, he never seemed to keep any of the weight on. When empty, his stomach was loosely distended, distended to the point where he could wrap it around his waist as if it were made, a belt made of his own still-attached flesh. When full, it was inflated like a balloon, not unlike a pregnant woman in her full or final trimester. His hair was fair and soft, while his cheeks, when not engaged to capacity, allegedly able to hold as much as a dozen eggs and they were wrinkled and hang, hung slack to create premature jowls. So, <laughs> prior to life as a, a successful street performer, the individual uh, is known only by a stage name, Tarar, uh, lived in destitution as part of a traveling caravan of criminal misfits, born in the rural countryside surrounding the epicenter of the booming silk-weaving tri uh, trade in Lyon, France, in approximately 1772, there's a picture of him here where he's got a dog in his mouth and a chicken leg in his hand and the drink in the other. Yeah, yeah, that's him. <laughs> his rapacious appetite was readily apparent from an early age. As legend goes, 
A young Terrar was capable of eating his own body weight in cow meat within a 24-hour period. Holy shit. That's crazy. Sadly, this boundless craving forced him out of his family's home as a teenager as they could no longer afford to feed him. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, wait, you're 14. Time to go there. I think uh, I have one of those at home, too, because my grocery <laughs> bill is insane. Oh, yeah. Well, how old, how old is he now? He's going to be 12. Oh, yeah. He's got that and appetite. it's like, uh, we, we order a pizza. I get a large cheese. Right. I'll have two pieces out of that. He'll eat the entire thing over like an hour. Yeah, that's that's a. And he probably weighs like, I don't know, 80 pounds. As my grandmother says, that there's a growing boy. He's got tapeworms, I think. <laughs> he doesn't have tapeworms. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just teenage. So after several years of touring the country as a vagabond begging for food, for a time, Terrar became the opener for a snake oil peddling mountain, uh, Mont, Mont back before taking off to Paris to perform as a solo act. With success came some risk. Terrar once collapsed mid-performance with uh, what was later discovered to be an intestinal obstruction requiring his audience to carry him to the nearby Hotel du Hospital. After being treated with laxatives, <laughs> oh man. Oh god, that's got to be a messy scene. <laughs> a grateful Terrar offered to demonstrate his talents by eating the surgeon's pocket watch. The surgeon agreed, but only under the condition that he be allowed to cut Terrar open to retrieve it. <laughs> How does that conversation go? <laughs> Oh, my God. Wisely, Terrar declined. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, well, no, on second thought, I won't do that. Thank you. Yes, you're not cutting me up, you motherfucker. It was during the French War of the First Coalition when respected military surgeon Dr. Pierre-Francois Percy first made the acquaintance of the in inexplicable Terrar, now a soldier for the French Revolutionary Army. Barely 20 years old, this peculiar patient proved to be quite extraordinary. Unable to subsist off a military rate uh, on rations alone, Terrar began doing odd jobs around the base for other soldiers in exchange for their rations, and when that proved to be insufficient, foraged for food scraps in dung hills. Oh, yeah. So he would go through piles of shit to find food. That's that's desperation. Right that's there, man. fucking gross. Dude likes to eat. Yeah. Despite all of his scrounging, Terrar succumbed to exhaustion and was admitted to a military hospital under the care of Dr. Percy. So the dude just could not get enough to eat. Like, period. That's just it. There, even being granted quadruple rations, failed to satiate his hunger. Terrar began to eat out of the garbage, steal the food of other patients, and even chow down on the hospital's bandage supply. <laughs> yeah. Psychological testing found Terrar to be apathetic, but otherwise sane. Percy's report described Terrar as having bloodshot eyes and constantly being overheated and sweating, with a body odor so rancid that he could be smelled from 20 feet away. Diabetes, and that's diabetes, by, yeah, and diabetes. That's, <laughs> that's by 18th century French military surgeon standards. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The smell only got worse after eating. Percy described it as being so bad he literally had visible stink lines. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> After eating, Terrar would succumb to the uh, the itis and pass out. Um, Percy observed this uh, after preparing a meal made for 15 to test Terrar's limits, which he predictably porked down. He just fucking ate the whole thing. Percy continued this experiment by feeding Terrar live animals. A cat, which he drank the blood of and after consuming. Oh, like, boy. Yeah. And like an owl, he only regurgitated its fur lizards uh he also you know, he regurgitated, regurgitated its fur so he ate everything and just puked up the fur like a hairball right and he also ate uh lizards snakes puppies and an entire eel yeah he's uh he's pretty fucking gross he was not allowed at the pet store no no nor at anyone's house yeah <laughs> ever 
Months of experimentation passed before the military discovered a way to put Terrar's unique ability to use. Terrar was commissioned as a spy for the French Army of the Rhine. His first mission was to secretly cur uh, courier a document across enemy lines in a place that uh, could not easily be detected if caught. His digestive tract. I was going to say. After being paid with a wheelbarrow full of 30 pounds of raw bull viscera, <laughs> which he ate immediately upon presentation directly in front of what we can only imagine to be the incredibly revolted generals and other commanding officers, Tarar swallowed a wooden box containing a document that could pass through his system completely intact and be delivered to a high-ranking prisoner of war in Prussia. <laughs> As one might expect, an individual who smells like a foot and compulsively eats from the garbage would likely attract attention. Not exactly the ideal hallmark makings of a spy. Compound this with the fact that Terrar did not speak any German and he was quickly caught, beaten in prison, and forced to undergo the psychological torment of a mock execution before being returned to France. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Again, under the care of Dr. Percy, the trauma, uh, the trauma Terrar endured, uh, or the trauma Terrar endured, left him inca uh, incapable of continuing his military service and desperate to find a cure for his condition. Uh, laudanum opiates, uh, wine, vinegar, uh, tobacco pills, and a diet of soft-boiled eggs were all employed. Laudanum. Jesus. But Terrar was still forced to walk the streets, fighting stray dogs for discarded slaughterhouse cuisine, drink the blood of patients who were being treated with bloodletting, and was even caught consuming cadavers from the hospital morgue multiple times. Eventually, a toddler went missing from the hospital, and Terrar, the suspected culprit, was chased from the premises before disappearing into the city. So he wow. he is accused of eating a, a, a baby. A, a, ba a baby. <laughs> Get in my belly. Look at that baby. Oh, I got a little rosebud for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Percy is contacted um, by a physician of uh, Versailles Hospital at the behest of a patient on their deathbed. Sure enough, it was Terrar, now um, brought to death's door by what he professed to be a golden fork he had swallowed two years previously and was now lodged inside of him. It had been four years since Percy had last seen Terrar, who hoped he could save his life by removing the fork. Unfortunately for Terrar, it was not a fork that was killing him, but end-stage tuberculosis. Within a month, Terrar passed. A curious colleague intended to inspect Terrar's corpse. However, fellow surgeons refused to partake, and it quickly became a race against the clock as the body began to rot rapidly. Findings from the autopsy revealed that Terrar possessed a shockingly wide esophagus, which allowed spectators to look directly from his open mouth into his stomach, which was unfathomably large and lined with ulcers. His body was full of pus, his liver and gallbladder abnormally large, and the fork was never recovered. So, what was the cause of Terrar's insatiable hunger? Well, in short, we don't actually know. When contemporary medical procedures of the time, including drinking raw mercury to clear out head demons, <laughs> uh, should it, it should come to uh, no surprise that Terrar received no suitable diagnosis or treatment in his own lifetime. However, some interesting theories have been suggested over the years. Ripley's.com was able to speak to Dr. Don Moore, a chiropractor certified in science-based nutrition and owner and operator of Synergy Pro Wellness, to get his take on things. He's like, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm out. Yeah. Now, granted, there is a possibility that Dr. Percy's personal documentation in the years following Terrar's death was exaggerated or falsified, but they were considered credible enough at the time of their publication to be featured in a reputable medical text such as the Study of Medicine, Popular uh, Physiology, and London Medical and Physical Journal. Plus, so he's, you know, he's a profound doctor. Uh, plus, Dr. Percy is considered 
the father of military surgeons, um, was chief surgeon to the French army, a university professor, inventor of important battlefield medical implements, and is considered an all-around highly reputable guy, right? So given, um, you know, given we accept the above tale as an accurate re representation of Terrar's symptoms, what does Dr. Moore, this other guy, have to say about it? Quote, it can be broken down by category. He didn't suffer from psychosis, so he was completely aware and cognitive. But that doesn't rule out hyperactivity of hormones and dysfunction of components of the brain. His sensor that would let him know he was full was damaged. If he underwent a brain study, he would have probably been identified as having an enlarged hypothalamus. End quote. What is a hypothalamus? Um, it's the part of the brain that um, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was going with something and I totally... Uh, I'm going to assume the hypothalamus is the... Well, obviously, it's it's something that stops you from eating, and maybe a gland. It's a gland, yeah, that, yeah. I don't know. I'm not a fucking doctor. What the fuck do I look like? I told you we could do this online. <laughs> it's like it's ten minutes of your time. You're you're certified MD. I'm gonna next time you guys hear from me, I'll be a doctor. <laughs> That's right. So the hypothalamus here it is regulates the body's temperature and is responsible for causing the sensation of hunger. Given Terrar was constantly overheated and in dire search of food, it's a perfect fit. Doctor Moore also suspects a possible case of pica, which causes the eating of non-edible objects. As for why Terrar never weighed more than 100 pounds, Dr. Moore uh, adroitly theorizes, based on his habitually eating raw meat, quote, he most likely had a parasite as well. The fact that he was of normal size means something else is being nourished, and the fact that he was constantly hungry leans towards him feeding a secondary organism, a parasite like a hookworm, or a roundworm, perhaps. Uh -huh. What's that mustache? You need to take a tinkle. We'll be right back after this message. Well, it's time to return back to the show. I'm glad you stayed and didn't leave. So we're just going to take these cotton balls and we're going to stretch them out a little bit and it's going to make a cute little ghost for Halloween. Ooh. Every trick-or-treater will come to the door and just be like, oh my god, it's such a cute little ghost. How precious. Heavens to mercy, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. It doesn't take a lot of time. No, and if you take the cotton balls and you dip them first, okay, now, the, now here's the way you have to do it, Just Angie. the dabble, do you? Right, and Gina, this is how you do it, okay? You take the cotton ball and then you lightly put it inside of your glue. Oh. <gasps> So then when you put it on there, it's going to be not, you won't have a mess or nothing. You won't even get it on your hand. You won't get it on your hand. And then when you go to stir the crock pot with the pot roast cooking for Jimmy, you won't get it all over the crock pot lid. It's so precious. So this next one we're going to be talking about here. Uh, we're talking about, you know, oddities and freak show performers and freaks and whatever. Um, this one, as far as freak shows go, all right, Fanny Mills, that's her name, Fanny Mills. Was one of the Fanny. most Fanny was one of the most unusual performers to ever step foot inside the sideshow tent. Known as the Ohio Bigfoot Girl. Uh-oh. Fanny seemed normal in every um at respect except for her massive feet. Fanny was born in Sussex, England in 1860 and then immigrated with her family to Sandusky, Ohio. All right. Wow. So, yeah, it's Ohio girl. Yeah. Of course. The of course it is. <laughs> but of course. Yeah. The condition that brought her notoriety was Milroy disease, a rare disorder that causes lymphedema in which the lower legs and feet swell with lymph fluid. Neither of Fanny's sisters were born with the disease, so it's just her. And um, you can actually find 
you, we'll post this on uh, as well on uh, we'll post up on a blog. Um, so on our website, you guys can go on there and you can check out the blog with all the pictures. And what is all a blog? Notes. It's just basically like you know what is does a it, blog? Does it stand for something? Um, big loser or organizational? No, I have no idea. <laughs> it's uh, basically you just post a bunch of like you know whatever on our website, so we can just tell people what's going on and show notes and shit like that. So we do have a blog on there, so you guys can go and you can look up. There'll be reviews for movies that we'll throw in here from time to time. Get hit to the blog. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna get on the blog. You guys gotta be blogging. Yeah, because if you want to read along, you know, with the episodes, all of our notes will be in there as well too. I so, mean, you never know when a blogging could be blogged. Right. So you need to blog on. Blog. Blog it. <laughs> so um, Fanny was a petite woman who only weighed 115 pounds. Her feet, however, were 19 inches long and 7 inches wide. Flippers. Yeah. She wore a size 30 shoe. Made 30? Of, yeah. Made of three goat skins. That's like Shaq feet. Yeah, that's big. That's bigger than Shaq, I would assume, right? Yeah, I think he's what, like 17 or something. Yeah, like that. that's a big ass foot. So Fanny started touring the country in 1885 as that girl from Ohio with, quote, the biggest feet on earth. She traveled with a nurse named Mary Brown who helped her get around. Her promoters advertised her to uh, unwed men as, (laughs) quote, a boon for poor bachelors. (laughs) Offering $5,000 and a well-stocked farm to any respectable man who would marry her. Oh, boy. Yeah. Quote, don't permit too <laughs> don't permit two big feet to stand between you and wedlock tinged with fortune, the ad read. When they put her in a grape field. I don't know. Fanny eventually was married uh, to uh, William Brown, Mary's brother, in 1886. She retired from show business in 1891 because of an illness and died later that year. Poor Fanny. Do you think the casket was like normal than at the foot? It was like taller. <laughs> you know, like a- <laughs> it'd have to be. God. I'm I'm doing motions that nobody can see right yeah, now. Right. I can you see guys, you. you guys get the gist, right? Right. So I'll, we- I'll blog it on the blogging and the blogger. <laughs> Honey, that'll be just perfect. <laughs> We're just gonna make this casket a little extra dabadooya <laughs> on the feet. Now the casket, ladies and gentlemen, is gonna have a little bit bigger of a feet bottom to it. We're going to put a little bit of cherry stain amongst it. All right. For bonus episodes, we're just going to do nothing but our craft shows from here on out. I think, think we should. I think that would be a big hit. Yeah. I think it'd be bigger than this show, to be honest with you. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. We yeah. need some feedback, guys. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> do you guys want to hear us talk about these things? <laughs> we're like Home and Gardens Magazine, only audible. <laughs> so let's talk about Grady Styles Jr. This guy is another famous one, uh, but you may not know his whole incredible, crazy story. He's the motherfucking lobster boy. Oh, yeah. This this is the guy in American Horror Story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Styles family was suffering from a peculiar physical condition known as, um, oh, Jesus, um, ectrodactyl. <laughs> Thank you. Ectro, ectrodactyl, fucking ectrodactyly, ect, whatever shit, fucking hell. <laughs> which is a rare congenital deformity that makes the hand look like lobster claws as the middle fingers are either missing or seemingly fused to the thumb or pinky finger. The family has been afflicted for over a century with this disease, a, a condition commonly known as the lobster claw. It is an un, uh, uncommon inherent inherent distortion of the hand where the center digit is missing and the hand is parted where the metacarpal of the finger ought to be. Okay? Yeah. So if you guys are thinking... It's like webbed hands. Like uh, people have webbed feet. Just... Kind of. Think back to the penguin in Batman. Oh, there you go. Danny DeVito. Yeah. Remember his hands? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> this split regularly um, uh, gives the hands the presence of lobster hooks in spite of the fact that cases run in, um, in seriousness. Frequently, this condition happens in both the hands and the feet, and while it is an acquired condition, it can skirt in age. While the term, ah, oh, this stupid word, ectrodactyli, ah, I think I got it that time. There you go. Ectrodactyli sounds uh, medicinally clean when contrasted with lobster claw syndrome. While many have viewed uh, ectrodactyli as a handicap for the Styles family, it came with an opportunity. The physical condition stayed within the family, and any newcomer to the family came out with unusual hands and feet. But one member from the family, Grady Styles Jr., would give the Styles family a different reputation when he became a serial abuser and murderer. Oh, so he got the pterodactyli, and he's going to abuse it. <laughs> pterodactyli. <laughs> yeah. What this happen? got shot the home of Grady Styles or popularly known as the Lobster Boy was an unpleasant place to be during the carnival season in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania Grady was one of the many sideshow performers who people came to gawk at sometime in wonder and sometimes out of rudeness Grady never concerned himself too much with the opinions of onlookers he was only there to put on a show his audience was whether his uh, audience was impressed or not Grady was born with a severe deformity that gave him the name Lobster Boy and if you want to see a picture right here, this this is that's old Lobster Boy right there. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, how did he brush his teeth? Uh, I, I would assume. Do you think he, they just like taped a toothbrush to the counter and he's like, ha, possibly, you know, possibly. Lobster Boy was born in Pittsburgh in 1937. At that point, his father was already part of the freak show circuit, adding his kids with the peculiar physical condition to the act. Sounds horrible. Because of the deformity, Grady couldn't walk and was confined to a wheelchair. His legs were almost flipper-like and unable to bear weight. Uh, this resulted in him using his upper body to maneuver around, usually in a wheelchair. God, put him in the water. <laughs> <laughs> All of the locomotion provided by his arms. <laughs> All the locomotion provided by his arms um, turned Grady into a rather strong man despite his downfalls. But he didn't only utilize uh, this to make his life easier for himself, but also to make others' lives harder. For most of his life, uh, <laughs> Grady primarily used a wheelchair, but also learned to use his power to uh, to use his upper body to pull himself across the floor with impressive strength. So he would literally pull himself. Yeah, how would you like to see that in the middle of the night? Nope. <laughs> like you wake up to get something to drink and it's... Nope. I am... <laughs> and he's dragging himself across the floor. Yeah, not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Grady's up again. <laughs> As Grady grew up, he would become immensely strong, something with which would uh, will cost his family later in life. All right, so age 19, Mary ran off to join the carnival, escaping her old life. Oddly enough, she felt she belonged best there, despite the fact that she was surrounded by people with shocking abilities and deformities. <laughs> but for um, her, this was normal. All right, so... Um, this is Mary Teresa. Mary Teresa wasn't there for the same reasons the performers were, but the carnival always needed staff to keep the shows running. It was here that she, Mary Teresa, met Grady Styles. Okay, so you follow me on this? It's love at first sight. Well, Mary uh, didn't see the monster in Grady as others had. She quickly fell in love with Grady, and the two were married within no time. Together Can you feel <laughs> the love tonight? Together they had two children, and like his father before him, introduced the children with Ectrodactyli to the family business. Uh, yeah, pterodactyli sounds way better. Yeah, I'm yeah, just going to start saying cooler. that. Yeah. 
Grady added his children into his sideshow with him traveling as an act known as the Lobster Family. Of the many issues that were in the family, money wasn't one of them. The family would make fifty to eighty thousand dollars per season, and Grady was considered the major star of the show. So they're they're making a pretty good living on this. But what do you do with all that money when you're deformed like that? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, what? I mean, it's not like you're gonna buy a new tractor. You can't fucking drive it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? True, true. I mean, what are you gonna do with all of it? You just say, "Hey, I got money. Pay what, people what to do, do, do pay people to do stuff for you." Yeah, I would I would have bought like uh, fake hands to put over my lobster ones yeah you know what i mean so it looked normal yeah maybe even robotic ones <laughs> <laughs> so there were no gimmicks with the lobster family no tricks or illusions and what the crowd saw is what the crowd got so it was it was quote unquote real once the winter set in the shows closed down and many of their performers including the styles family uh, resided in florida until the new season came around Despite the pleasant weather and more free time, Grady still didn't hesitate to inflict physical and emotional pain on his family. So he's a great guy. If many um, if uh, many people only would have known, uh, or Mary, excuse me, if Mary would have only known when she was younger what she knew after marrying Grady, perhaps it would have made a difference. You know, she obviously didn't know, as most people don't. Mary recollected that Grady was the best anybody could be, a genuinely honorable man. However, as soon as he poured liquor in his body, something in his brain changed and brain change, and he would abandon a nobleman to a harsh spouse and father. That does it to us all. That's uh, it's, There's always a drink, yeah, right? Yeah. What's, what's your evil drink? Uh, Mine's tequila. tequila. If I drink tequila, yeah. I'm fighting. Tequila, same here. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, why, yeah. why is that? I don't know. And It's, it's it, a tequila for a lot of people. And what's weird about it, too, is that there is no scientific reasoning why that is. Because, I mean, all alcohol is pretty much like consumed by our body the same. Yeah. So why it... Tequila affects me completely different than you any think other it's thing. like the spanish it's like hey, hey <laughs> you want to go toe to toe your brain's just like oh vato <laughs> it's time to kill somebody what you say i say <laughs> so he turned into a uh, much more alarming man a genuine beast more noteworthy than the others considered him to be he was a real nightmare come to life <laughs> all right this so this is mary Mary was impacted in ways that she would never forget. She remembered that her husband was a great guy when he woke up in the morning by 8 a.m. and started drinking by 10 and would be miserable for the rest of the day. Jeez. In 1973, um, Grady and Mary, uh, Mary's marriage hit its first end when Mary decided that she couldn't take the abuse any longer. After Grady launched himself at her, took her to the floor, <laughs> ripped her pantyhose, reached his claw, reached his uh -oh. claw hand and ripped out the... Uh, the intrauterine device, a device used to prevent pregnancy. Oh, an interuterine device. Sorry. So he reached in and pulled this device out of her and used her hands to choke her. Used her hands to choke her. Something they were seemingly designed to do well. Or his hands. It's his hands, not her hands. I don't know why. Damn it, Moody. So anyway, he he. can you imagine this little... Oh boy, this guy with like webbed feet and everything else, yeah. super beastly up top, running at you, knocking you down, reaching inside of his wife, pulling a anti-pregnancy device out, yeah, and then choking the shit out of her. Yeah, that's messed up. Fucking hell. Mary was so disgusted, horrified, and emotionally wounded that she wisely left him. Good job, Mary. The worst was yet to come after Mary was gone. Grady started drinking even more. And when her teenage daughter, Donna, fell in love with a young man that he didn't approve of, he didn't take the decision very well. Uh-oh. Donna and Jack Lane were in love and wanted to marry, but Grady forbade the marriage, threatening to kill Jack numerous times. Donna was unhappy with her drunk and abusive father and wanted an escape, obviously. Donna told Grady that if he didn't approve of the underage marriage, she or that if he didn't approve the underage marriage, she would live with Jack anyway. 
So she's basically like, if you don't do this, I'm out. Like any teenage girl. Correct. Pretty much. Given that ultimatum and shit. Yeah. This further enraged Grady, who prided himself in the way he dominated his family and controlled them. Grady was home when Jack came home to see him on the night before Jack and Donna were to be married. Thinking that maybe Grady had uh, changed his mind and is now happy, you know, with their marriage idea. Instead of agreeing, um, Grady picked up his shotgun and murdered his daughter's fiance in cold blood. He sat there while his daughter came home and said, I told you I would kill him. Yeah. Grady went to trial where the defense attempted to get the jury to pity Grady in his condition. The defense played heavily into the fact that Grady had an unfortunate life driven to drinking and violence by the incessant struggles he faced. Grady even managed to shed some tears in the courtroom. His daughter Donna took the stand and told him that, quote, she would see him at his grave, end quote. Yeah. The jury took three hours in deciding that Grady was guilty of third-degree murder. Grady received a sentence of 15 years, but not in prison, <laughs> and got 15 years of probation for murdering someone. The state believed that their prison system, even in their handicap-accessible facilities, weren't equipped to handle the specific need for Grady Styles. No prison could deal with his handicap, and to restrict him to jail would be merciless and irregular discipline. He additionally, at this point, had procured liver cirrhosis from drinking and had emphysema from long stretches of cigarette smoking. <laughs> Jeez. So Grady got to serve his sentence from home where he continued to drink heavily and beat his children. Yay, government. Woo. Wow, this, hey, this guy, man. You guys did awesome with that one. Woo. For reasons that no one, um, either in the Styles family or outside of it, has been able to understand, his first wife agreed to remarry him in 1989. Mary, who left Grady earlier, came back in his life again in 1989 and, surprisingly enough, forgave the monster for all of his wrongdoings. As earlier, earlier, Grady was decent for a while, but after some time, the monster in him came back to haunt the lives of Mary and their children. The violence surged back to the surface, as did copious amounts of sexual assault. Yeah. A couple of years after she remarried Styles, she paid her 17-year-old neighbor, Chris Wyant, $1,500 to, uh, to murder him. Yeah. Mary Teresa's child from another marriage, Glenn, helped her imagine the thought and complete the arrangement. One night, Wyant, the neighbor, took a 32 caliber Colt automatic he had uh, a companion buy for somebody buy for him. He went into Styles' trailer and uh, with Grady. Grady was watching television in his underwear. Wyant put two rounds in the back of his head at the <laughs> at the point of uh, clear range, killing him instantly. Wow. Yeah. So police arrested Mary, uh, her son Harry, and the killer Wyant. The jury convicted Wyant of second-degree murder and sentenced sentenced him to 27 years. So he got a tougher sentence. Yeah, for killing this because they just didn't want to deal with it. They didn't bastard. want to have to, like you said, all the handicap stuff and special staff and all that. Yeah, which so they should have just said, okay, fuck it, we'll kill him, give him the death penalty. Yeah, right. But I they mean, they didn't. They gave him 15 years probation. Yeah. So um, not one of them denied that they had intended to kill Grady Styles during the trial. His wife spoke at the, the length of his abusive history. Quote. My husband was going to kill my family, she told the court. I believe that from the bottom of my heart, end quote. Unfortunately for Mary's uh, child, Glenn, self-defense isn't ap applicable when hiring a hitman. <laughs> right? You guys hear that, folks? <laughs> yeah. Don't hire hitmen. Yeah. And Glenn was convicted of first-degree murder and was given life a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. At least one of their children, Kathy, testified against him as well. Mary was also charged with first-degree murder, and her conviction was reduced to manslaughter as she was sentenced to 12 years behind bars. She unsuccessfully uh, appealed her conviction and began to serve her sentence in February of 1997. She had tried to get Glenn to take a plea bargain, but he refused. The court sentenced him to life in prison. 
Just as uh, a significant portion of his living family was uh, being tried for his murder, Grady Stiles' body was put to rest, or unrest, as it were. Lobster Boy was so disliked, not just in his family, but within the community, that the funeral home could not find anyone willing to be pallbearers. That's fucked up. Yeah. That is a crazy-ass story. I, 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 I did not know that. Talk about being dealt some shitty cards. Yeah, wow. For everyone involved, you know? That is, that is fucked up. Like, so it's bad enough. I mean, you got a pretty fucked up life as it is, but then you turn into a fucking just a dick. Well, he took everybody else down with him, which was a shame. Right. You know, mm, what I mean, a- he could have just jumped in the water and lived with the dolphins and had a good life. But <laughs> no, <laughs> I was going to say something. I lost it right there. It sounded like I was like, <laughs> he just, All right, I'm leaving you guys. <laughs> and just jumps off and paddles yeah. away. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Ella Harper. Most sources indicate that Ella Harper was born in Hendersonville, Tennessee, around 1870, although there were some conflicting reports. It also has been revealed that Ella had a twin brother who died quite early. What is not not argued, however, is the fact that Ella was born with an unusual orthopedic condition resulting in knees that bent backwards. Oh, yeah. The nature of this unusual affliction is exceedingly rare and relatively unknown. However, most modern medical types would classify her condition and a very advanced form of congenital genu recurvatum, also known as back knee deformity. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm standing up right now because I want to see how this would be. Like, so her knees are backwards, which means you can't bend, you'd bend this way. So like <laughs> when you I, walk. I really wish you guys could see I Jeff know, trying to, to do this right so now. like when she would walk, it would be like, like backwards, <laughs> you know, because like the way... The way the knee bends? That's yes. fucked up. Yeah, it, it is fucked up. Imagine being like a little kid and having that and trying to figure out like... How to walk? How to walk. How to do anything? Just, yeah. Her unusually bent knees, coupled with her preference of walking on all fours, resulted in her moniker of the camel girl. If you want to see a picture of her, this is her. Oh, it's actually. like crab walking, yeah, right? Yeah, Basically. But she's walking forward, but her yeah. knees are bent backwards. So... Can you see that one? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I saw it on the, on the yeah. thing too. It's pretty. So what I would have done, this is what I would have done. I would have got heelys and wheelies. So heelys for my shoes, for my feet, and then special gloves with wheels on them. So you could just kind of, like, you know, kind of like, I <laughs> know <laughs> nobody can see this. <laughs> These motions you're making right know, now know, are quite disturbing. In 1886, <laughs> Ella was the star of W.H. Harris's Nickel Plate Circus, often appearing accompanied by a camel when presented to audiences, and she was a feature in the newspapers of every town the circus visited. Those newspapers touted Ella as, quote, the most wonderful freak of nature since the creation of the world, and that her, quote, counterpart never did exist. The back of Ella's 1886 pitch card is far more modest in its information. Quote, I am called the camel girl because my knees turn backward. I can walk best on my hands and feet, as you see in me in the picture. What does it have to do with a camel, by the way? I, I don't get the, the correlation. Do camel's knees go backwards? No. Are you sure? Yeah, they're like a horse. They have, like... Don't they have, like, revert? I think they do. They don't walk weird. They walk normal. What am I, a fucking veterinarian? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All right, <laughs> listeners out there, we need to know what's up with the camel. That's your that's your quest yeah. for this week. I know they spit. I know they're bastards. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, they're bastards. They make great cigarettes, by the way. <laughs> I have traveled considerably <laughs> in the show business for the past four years, and now this is 1886, and I intend to quit the show business and go to school and fit myself for another occupation. They are backwards. Their knees are backwards? I'm looking at my cigarettes right now. See, I got 
Camel cigarettes? Yeah. Look, at, look at the back legs. See Let how they're see. inverted? They're inverted. Yeah, see? So it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's why she's called the camel. Jeez. You don't think about that when you say camel. Jeez. Like, I'm sure everyone's like, fucking camel? What? <laughs> you have to like really look at it. How many uh, humps does a camel have? Four. Good answer. It appears that Ella did indeed move on to other ventures, and her $200 weekly salary likely opened many doors for her for quite some time. No Again, for- what's she going to do with the money? Like, really? She's going to fucking she's walk around. Especially made recliner chairs to yeah. watch TV and like, what? <laughs> but no further information was available on Ella following 1886. But recently, a genealogist managed to not only trace Ella's family tree, but also provide some information regarding her life after the sideshow. On June 28, 1905, Ella Harper married a man named Robert L. Savely. Savely was a school teacher and later a bookkeeper for a photo supplies company. A 1910 census shows Ella and her husband living in Nashville, Tennessee with Ella's mother, and it also revealed that Ella and her husband had adopted a three-month-old child, but that the child passed away only 18 days later. So we're missing the big picture here. Oh, shit. There's people that are into this freak stuff. You know what I mean? Like, right. How does a normal guy, and maybe I'm going to get offensive or some hate mail. No, for saying this, not you. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real, okay? Let's be real. We're all human here. So how does a normal guy go up to a girl that walks like a crab <laughs> and say, you know what? This is the girl for me. Listen, people are into some freaky shit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Nobody listen. puts that connection together in all these stories, right? <laughs> to each like the crab own. guy? Yeah. You know, lobster boy? Like, yeah. dude, what was that girl thinking? To each their own, man. She's looking at them hands like, hmm. hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's some freaky shit going on here beyond the freaks. Oh, my God. Well, we also know now that Ella died of colon cancer on December 19th. Oh, way, way to bring it down. Yeah. <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee, and that she was buried at Spring Hill Cemetery in Nashville. A simple gravestone mark um, marks her plot, but she is surrounded by her family. What's that mustache? You need to take a tinkle. We'll be right back after this message. Well, it's time to return back to the show. I'm glad you stayed and didn't leave. Oh. It's perhaps my favorite. Taking a child's coloring book and coloring. It's 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 quite um cathartic. It's a stress reliever. And it's very nice, especially for those out there that would like to just, you know, sometimes you don't have to stay within the line. That's correct. You don't have to. You don't because life is like that. You don't stay in between the lines. Sometimes. Especially. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's creeping me out. I think it's going to be a hit. Yeah, it's going to be a hit. Yeah. Yeah, people like our new our new craft. podcast will be launching soon. And the cool part is that they can they can craft along with the podcast. You know what I mean? Like they get all we could have uh, a list of materials needed. And then you sit down with your little Bluetooth player and you sit at the table and. Just have a good old time. Now we need you to reach over and grab the shark's tooth. And this time you just take it and just jam it right into the little little eyeball. But just the dab will do you. Just a little dab. Heaven's the mercy. All right, so let's talk about Leonard Trask, the wonderful invalid. All right. Some human marvels are made, not born. Often their manufacture is accidental and painful, such as the case of Leonard Trask. Born on June 30th, 1805 in Hartford, Maine, Trask suffered a major neck injury in his 20s when he was thrown from a horse. 
The story was that a pig ran under the hooves of the horse and after being thrown from the back of his steed, Trask spent several days crawling back home. Oof. Ah, with a neck injury. Fuck. That sucks. <laughs> Despite the serious injury, Trask continued to work as a farmhand until his spine began to bow. Soon, Trask's chin was pressed into his chest permanently and subsequent injuries only exasperated his misery. In 1840, he took a nasty fall, and in 1853, he was thrown from his wagon and broke four ribs and his collarbone. Jesus Christ. At this point, dude, just give up. You know what I mean? Holy shit. On May 24th, 1858, Trask was involved in a high-speed coach accident in which he and several passengers were thrown to the ground. In the accident, Trask struck his head and opened a gash in his head five inches long. The injury was severe, and he was not expected to survive, but he did and was even more disabled and miserable as a result of the injury. Man, what a... Jesus. He's a Frankenstein at this point. Yeah. Through much of his adult life, his wife took care of him, and despite his physical limitations, he fathered seven children with her. Unable to work, Trask was eventually able to spin his status as a medical curiosity into a small career as a human oddity attraction to the general public. Hmm. As the wonderful invalid, as he was dubbed, Trask was able to capture a small measure of fame. His 1860 self-published story, A Brief Historical Sketch of, of the Life and Sufferings of Leonard Trask, the Wonderful Invalid. Jesus, see what the book titles. <laughs> God. Imagine the t-shirts back then. <laughs> <laughs> it prints all the way around Just to the wrecked. back and everything. Yeah. Ah. Anyway, so this book uh, included accounts of his activities uh, like Mr. Trask at the circus and Mr. Trask going to drink that were both amusing and sad. At the time of his death on April 13th, 1861, Trask's condition was still not officially diagnosed despite seeing more than 22 doctors during his lifetime. Today, Trask would be diagnosed with oh, <laughs> ankylosing spondylitis, spond spondylitis. Spondylitis. Yeah. I hear that on the radio all the time. Really? Yeah, it's like what a the thing. What fuck station are you listening to? Uh, WMS. Really? Yeah. Ankylosing spondylitis. 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 Okay. It could just affect uh, less than 0.2% of the general population. It's got to be popular, more popular than that because, like I said, there, there's ads all the time. Now, is there uh, different types of them, maybe? So this one's the ank uh, ankylosing. They're saying that this is just like, I think that common back pain has been kind of lumped into this. Oh. You know how, like, when kids are just fucking wild and hyper, they say, oh, ADHD. Right. You know how everything got lumped into ADHD? Right. Even though it's probably not it. This, that, I think that's what this is. Just sugar. Same thing. <laughs> Just sugar. Yeah. Uh, your kid does not pay attention. He's hyper and he's uncontrollable. ADHD. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean he ate an entire box of Captain Crunch this morning? Yeah. yeah. ADHD. They say that doesn't have anything to do with it now. Now sugar doesn't affect you is what they say. Because it's all bullshit. Yeah. They're bastards. So let's talk about Josephine Myrtle Corbin. So for all intents and purposes, Myrtle, <laughs> Myrtle. <laughs> that, hey, that, Myrtle. that came up on the last episode of I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, Josephine Myrtle Corbin was a normal girl. Her birth was not marked by anything out of the ordinary, and her mother claimed to have had a typical labor and delivery apart from the baby being uh, momentarily in the breech position. Okay, so nothing bad. All right. The doctors who examined the baby after birth reported her to be strong and healthy, adding that she was growing at a good rate. A year later, she was found to be nursing healthily and thriving well. Overall, Myrtle Corbin was a perfectly healthy, active, and thriving baby girl, all in spite of having four legs. Four. After being born with four legs, two normal-sized ones on either side of a pair of diminutive, smaller ones, fucking words, the doctor who delivered Myrtle Corbin felt it necessary to point out the factors that, felt, that they felt could have resulted in her deformity. 
first, the baby's parents, the doctor said, were about 10 years apart in age. William H. Corbin was 25 and his wife, Nancy, was 34. Uh-huh. So that's what did it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what did it. Do you hear that, you cradle robbers? <laughs> Calm your shit. Yeah. Second, the doctors noted that the couple bore a striking resemblance to each other. Well, they're brother and sister. Well, both of them were redheads with blue eyes and very fair complexions. They actually looked so similar that the doctors felt it necessary to explicitly point out that the two were not blood kin in their medical reports. Despite the two factors the doctors listed, it seemed that the young girl was simply an oddity. Her parents had had uh, seven other children, all of whom were perfectly ordinary. Later, it would be determined that she was born with uh, Depigus. Depigus. Oh, yeah, sure. And her condition was likely the result of her body's axis splitting as it developed. As a result, she was born with two pelvises side by side. With each pelvis, she had two sets of legs, one normal sized and one small. The two small legs were side by side, flanked on either side by two normal legs, though one with a clubbed foot. According to medical journals written by the physicians that studied Myrtle Corbin throughout her life, she was able to move her smaller inner legs, though they weren't strong enough for her to ap- uh, to be able to walk on. Damn. Which, of course... I wanted to see that road on her being like... <laughs> <laughs> she just, like, takes off, you know, like, this a little cloud of smoke by her feet. Four legs yeah. just... <laughs> uh, but, of course, it didn't really matter as they were not long enough to actually touch the ground. Mm. All right, so they were just short, little, itty-bitty, dangly legs, you know. Um, in 1881, at age 13, Myrtle Corbin joined the sideshow circuit under the moniker The Forward Legged Girl from Texas. So, wait, she could stand up and go to the bathroom with her normal still legs? Be sitting down. <laughs> Wrap your head around that. What? Well, she'd be sitting on the toilet. Okay. Her front two legs would be sit position. Yeah. And the other two little ones would be full stand. God, that's fucking weird. So, it's like she could, like, literally poop and pee. Without having to sit down ever on a toilet. It's, oh my God. Where, where are you? What's, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm, tell me you did not go there in your <laughs> I, mind. I honestly did not. I not know a, listeners did. Oh, boy. They're glad I, they're, they're glad I said it because yeah, they know. Because they were thinking it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's what I would think. Like, if I had four legs, I'd be like, man, I could just sit anywhere and poop and pee. Oh, Jesus. Right? What the fuck? No. <laughs> After showing her to uh, curious neighbors and charging them a dime each, her father realized her potential for publicity and for cash. He had promotional pamphlets made up and began placing ads in newspapers for people to come see her. The promotional pamphlets described her as a girl with as gentle of a disposition as the summer sunshine and, and as happy as the day is long. And Who in, writes that shit? Yeah, I'm telling you, dude. They just they wrote. Nowadays, be like, she cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and indeed, that appeared to be true. Throughout her time as a sideshow attraction, she became wildly popular. Eventually, rather than bringing the curious onlookers to her, she began traveling. By visiting small towns and cities and performing for the public, she ended up earning up to 450 bucks a week. Eventually, famed showman P.T. Barnum, our buddy P.T., heard about her and hired her for his show. For four years, she continued to work for Barnum and even inspired several other showmen to produce fake four-legged humans for their own shows when they couldn't get her. See? Bastards. Spider girl. That's yeah. what they call her. Spider. Step right up. Come see Spider Girl. Spider Girl. She can poop and pee wherever she pleases. (laughs) At 18 years old, Myrtle Corbin retired from the sideshow business. She'd met a doctor named Clinton Bicknell and fell in love. At age 19, the uh, two were married. About a year later in the spring of 1887, Myrtle Corbin discovered she was pregnant. She'd gone to a doctor in Blountsville, Alabama, complaining of pain on her left side, fever, headache, and a decreased appetite. Despite her unique anatomy, she had two sets of internal and external reproductive anatomies, by the way. Yeah, that's why the guy fell in love. (laughs) 
make, make the connection. Come on. We're all thinking it. We're all thinking it. We're all adults here. Just, we know just, what's going on. We can read between the lines. Just your eye roll was amazing. You guys didn't couldn't see that. But just, just the eye roll was awesome. Oh, man. So despite this, yes, show, uh, the doctors didn't believe that there was a reason that she couldn't carry them to full term. You know, they didn't think whatever. Though she became greatly. They just wanted to see what would happen. Like, right. We got to see this. We got to see this play out. Just like, tell her she's fine. Yeah. If she dies, she dies. Yeah. Though she became gravely ill during the first three months of her pregnancy, resulting in her doctor performing an abortion, she ended up giving birth to four more healthy children in her life. After performing in the sideshow and giving birth to her children, Myrtle Corbin's life was rather normal. Though her case continued to pop up in medical journals around the country, she maintained a quiet existence in her Texas home with her husband and children. Eventually, in 1928, she died as the result of a uh, streptococcal skin infection. Yuck. Though antibiotics make the condition easily treatable today, in the 1920s, there was no such treatment available. So mm. that's unfortunately what happened to her. Poor Myrtle Corbin. Myrtle. Myrtle. All right, so let's talk about CeeLo. And no. Green? <laughs> and not, I've been driving around town with that girl I love. No. This is uh, St uh, Stanislaus Berent was an American freak who performed at many freak shows, including the World Circus Sideshow in 1941, under the stage name of CeeLo the Seal Boy. So that's CeeLo. Oh, no. S-E-A-L-O. CeeLo. The Seal Boy, often stylized to just CeeLo. Uh, he was known for his seal-like arms, which were caused by a congenital medical condition known as uh, Facomelia. <laughs> I don't know. That's my favorite one to say now. Hey, Facomelia. Hey, you know? Hey, fuck Amelia. Fo yeah, fuck Amelia. For sure, you're fucked. For, right. Yeah. In 2001, Matt Fraser's play inspired by CeeLo called Seal Boy Freak debuted. Berent was born November 24th, 1901 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was brought up as a Polish Catholic and suffered from an extremely rare congenital disorder, as we said, known as fuck Amelia, which caused his seal arms. He had no arms. His hands grew from his shoulders. So if you can envision that real quick. So he actually has no arms. His hands are up here. That's They're awesome. on his shoulders, right? Um, he, I would be a dancer. Seela started off his career as a newspaper seller, then was discovered by freak scouters. Um, freak scouters, right? He was a regular feature at Coney Island's freak show from circa 1920 to 1970, and was exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, and was exaggerated. <laughs> We're waiting. Thank you. As a human with a seal body and on some promotional sideshow posters. Despite his genetic disability, CeeLo was able to carry out feats like sawing a crate in half and shaving with a straight razor on his own. Oh, God. As well as molding animal figurines out of clay. His partner on stage was Toby, a chimpanzee. CeeLo had trouble getting up and down the performance stage due to his weak legs. He would spend um, the time in which he was not performing on stage selling pitch cards. After performing, he preferred resting at hotels to sleeping at the fairground. He performed at the World Circus Sideshow in 1941. He also toured around the world and performed at many other freak shows. CeeLo's freak show career lasted for 35 years, and he retired in 1976 and moved to Showman's Retirement Village in Gibsonton, Florida. That's a long stretch, 35 years. Yeah. He returned to his hometown of Pittsburgh afterwards. When his health started to decline, he spent his final days at a Catholic hospital and passed away in 1980. Oh yeah, the seal boy. So we got one more here. We're gonna throw at you. All right. So George and Willie Muse. All right. All right. The Muse brothers had an incredible career. 
The story of the two black albino brothers from Roanoke, Virginia is unique even in the bizarre world of freaks and sideshow. They were initially exploited and then later hailed for their unintentional role in civil rights. Born in the 1890s, the pair were scouted by sideshow agents and kidnapped in 1899 by bounty hunters working in the employ of an unknown sideshow promoter. Black albinos, being extremely rare, would have been an extremely lucrative attraction. They were falsely told that their mother was dead and that they would never be returning home. That's fucked up. Yeah. That is fucked. The brothers began to tour to accentuate their already unusual appearance. Appearance? Appearance. Their, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> their handler had the uh, brothers grow out their hair into long white dreadlocks. In 1922, showman Al G. Barnes began showcasing the brothers in his circus as white Ecuadorian cannibals, Eco and Eco. When that gimmick failed to attract crowds, the brothers were rechristened the Sheep-Headed Men, and later in 1923, the Ambassadors from Mars. <laughs> wow. They're really throwing anything at this, huh? Yeah. As the men from Mars, the two traveled extensively with the Barnes Circus. Unfortunately, while they were being fed, housed, and trained and playing in, and trained in playing the mandolin, they were not getting paid. In the mid-1920s, the Muse Brothers toured with Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus. In 1927, while visiting their hometown, their mother finally tracked them down. She fought to free her sons some 20 years after their disappearance. She threatened to sue, and the Muse brothers were freed. The brothers filed a lawsuit for the wages they earned, but were uh, never paid. They initially demanded a lump sum, a payment of $100,000. However, as time passed, the Muse brothers missed the crowds, the attention and the opportunity Sideshow provided. Their lawyer got them a smaller lump sum payment and a substantial contract with a flat monthly wage. The pair returned to show business in 1928. All right. So during the first season back, they played Madison Square Garden and drew over 10,000 spectators during each of their performances. They made uh, spectacular money as their new contract allowed them to sell their own merchandise and keep all the profits for themselves. Okay. So they're doing this for themselves now, which is kind of fucked up. They were basically, they not basically, they were fucking kidnapped and yeah. forced to do this for free. And now they're like, well, we're going to turn it into an actual business. So in the 1930s, they toured Europe, Asia, and Australia. They performed for royals and dignitaries, including the Queen of England. In 1937, they returned to Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus for several years and finally ended their career in 1961 with the Clyde Beatty Circus. The brothers returned to their hometown and lived together in a house they originally purchased in a house they originally purchased for their mother. Neither brother ever married, though they were all known for their, their many extravagant courtships. So, you know, they had, they had, some, they had some stuff. You know. you right, they had some. George, Mude, Mude, George Muse, one of the brothers, died in 1971, and many expected Willie to quickly follow his brother. Those people were actually wrong, as Willie continued to play his mandolin and enjoy the company of friends and family until his death on Good Friday of 2001. If you guys can do the math real quick, that means that Willie was 108 years old. Yikes. Yeah. So uh, these are, you know... Just a bunch of different freaks that we wanted to throw out there to you guys and oddities from out there, man. And we know it's Halloween and people are going to be dressing up and they're getting into the spirit of things and whatnot. And uh, these were actual real people that had real things going on in their lives. And remember, don't judge people. Yeah. No, don't be judging someone. I just because Lobster Boy could be an asshole, which we've discovered. Yeah, that that's a different thing. He was a fucking dick. But at first, you don't know. Yeah, he was just a big fucking douchebag. Yeah, I don't care if you got fucking Robster Cross or not. Robster. <laughs> <laughs> Robster Cross. I appreciate a Robster Cross. 
<laughs> so we purposely did not cover guys like the Elephant Man and other stuff like that because we wanted to bring you some interesting ones that are less lesser known, um, except maybe the Lobster Boy, you know, because that dude was fucking just fucking nuts, fucking yeah. crazy guy. There are some more interesting stories, and uh, you know, Coney Island deserves its own discussion. Coney Island, and uh, perhaps we will do a bonus episode Ooh. on that one. Very nice. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our news segment. WTF, or as I like to say, what the f- So here's the deal. Halloween is very, very close. Yes. We're about, what, three weeks away? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. Like yeah. 20 days from today, from recording right now. Correct. Okay. And a lot of you out there, I, I know this year has been so screwed up, you know, with, with COVID and parties and gatherings and whatnot, but a lot of you are still doing stuff, which is fine. You know, it's your decision. And I know a lot of you that are deciding to go to Halloween parties are asking the big question. You're like, Jeff, what the hell do I wear? Well, I got it for you. Oh, I've got the top 10 top selling currently Halloween costumes for this year. Oh, really? And we're going to go through them. All right. Let's go through them. Cool. All right. What do we got? So we're going to go from 10 to 1. Okay. Okay. Number 10. Mm-hmm. Is a cow. What? Yeah. Like the full cow costume with the udders and everything. One person or two person? It's a one person. One person. But that's the top selling. So you're just a 10th top selling costume right now. So people are buying these cow costumes. They're going to go as a cow. Way to be creative. (laughs) All right. Don't be a fucking cow. (laughs) Don't be a cow. Come on. There's nothing cool about it. Yeah. There's, yeah. Don't be a cow. That's like, oh my God. That's so precious. No, if you just wear that, I'm telling you, darling, you're going to be the, the highlight. We could paint it brown and we could be chocolate milk cows. Now, just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. Uh, All right, so number nine. Number, number nine. Number nine is a Snapchat filter. People are, are buying a costume to be this. It's basically a unicorn horn puking rainbow out of your mouth. Wait, what? So look. Yeah, hold on. Let me, Let see me show this. you. So. We're going to have to post these up, too. It It's a Snapchat filter where you puke the rainbow. So it's, it's a unicorn. It's a, it's a costume, but it's a unicorn puking rainbows. Yes. What it, in the that's, fuck? It's a big thing on Snapchat. It's like one of the filters that everybody uses. You know, like, oh, my God, I'm so cute. Look at that. I don't know nothing that's about That's number nine of selling. Number right nine? Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. All right. Um, again, don't do that one either. Yeah. Shitty costume. <laughs> yes. You're not going to win any prizes yeah. at the contest. Yeah, that's shitty. Yeah. Uh, number sucks. eight is Lil Nas X at the 2020 Grammys. This is a costume. And it's a pink cowboy costume. I'm going to flip this so John can see it and laugh. What in the flying fuck? It looks like somebody, it looks like a gay cowboy dipped himself in Pepto-Bismol. I'm assuming that's what it is. I'm assuming this guy is gay and he's at the Grammys. Is he? he I would imagine. I don't know anything about him. I mean, what maybe you guys it? do. Little, Lil Nas. Lil Nas. Maybe he's just N-A-S. eccentric. Maybe. But what? it's a full pink cowboy costume. No, he's just... I don't at think. the 2020 Grammys. His real name is Montero Lamar Hill. He's a rapper, singer, and songwriter. <laughs> So he's just eccentric. That's fine. Okay. Oh, oh, oh! He's the guy that did Old Town, Old Town Road, or whatever it's called. Oh, okay. That's which is that that hip hop uh, country song or whatever? Okay. Which, by the way, sucks. Okay. So you're gonna go as him. That's <laughs> sorry. Number eight. A lot, 
a lot of people are buying this costume. Let's do let's not do that one either. Okay, that's not scary. I don't like that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Number seven, and I have no idea what this is. You guys are gonna have to help me out on this. Mia from Little Fries Every Little Fires Everywhere. What the, is that? Mia a, from Little Fires Everywhere. Is that a TV show? I guess. What the I have fuck? To look that up. This is number seven. Mia. Mia from Little Fires Everywhere. All right, I'm looking this one up. Oh, here it is. Mia Mia Warren is that her name? Yeah, it says uh, nobody can hold a candle to Kerry Washington, but we can make our very best attempts. All right, let, me, let me see this. Yeah, it's it's just jeans. It's it's the girl over here. In the in Why? the black. Why? I what? don't know. Maybe it's a popular show. And that's a costume. Are we getting old? Is that we we don't know any of this? There's stuff? no getting. <laughs> we are fucking old because these are maybe these are the not- listeners are probably gonna be like, what the fuck? But this is literally, guys. This is the top ten that's selling right now. So this is number seven. This Mia, all right, whatever, from whatever show it is, I guess. All right. Oh, here we go. Okay, this is one we can all relate to. Number six. Okay, Mister Rogers. Okay, I, I can see that and the tie. I can see you be Mister Rogers. Yeah, you know I'm, why now? I don't know, but. Still, maybe because that movie just came out recently with which uh, is a weird movie, Tom Hanks. By the way. I haven't seen it. It's yeah. like really weird. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, makes Mister Rogers like a creep. Oh boy. Yeah. Anyway, so Mister Rogers is number six. But I could see that one. But let me ask a question real quick as we're All going right. through these. This is number six, right? Yeah. So we're about to go into the top five. Top five. Okay. None of those are to me. First of all, they're not scary at all. They're not creepy. They're not. Well, oh, Halloween's not about being scary. It's about being slutty and funny. That's. Is horseshit. Guys try to be funny. Girls try to be slutty. It's I mean, let's shit. be real, right? It's the horse That's how shit. Halloween is. Okay. Horseshit. Here we go. Number five. Ready? We're getting in there. All right. Quarantine couch potato. This is pretty good. Okay. So it's a All little right. couch and it's got a potato in your head. Your face comes out of the potato. <laughs> it's like he's holding a drink and potato chips. Okay. So it's like a potato sitting on the couch. Basically, this is the costume. It's a couch potato. Pretty good. Quarantine couch potato. Okay. So we're, we're getting there. All right. I mean, that's... We're up in the ante. That's fine. That's fine. I'll, I'll that's take That's number it. five. Still not fucking scary. Number four is The Masked Singer. What? Like the TV show. It's basically a pineapple <sighs> head with uh, sunglasses on. What the fuck? This is what's wrong with the people now. I mean, it, yeah. Where did you get this list from? Is it like from the top White Claw drinkers list ever? <laughs> no, this is like the top selling, oh, according to Google. Boy. All right. All right. Number three. We're getting close. Oh, God. Oh. You're going to love this. Oh, man. Number three. Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly Shut as a couple's costume. Fuck up. It's, Are you serious? It's the number third selling. They even have their outfits you can buy. What? Why? <laughs> people, people, what are we doing, man? Oh, man. Like, what are, what's, what are we this doing? Is why this is WTF. Oh, boy. I had to bring this to light. All right, so here we go. So that was number three, Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly. You can buy the whole outfit and go, you and your boyfriend can go together. As oh, well. boy. Megan Fox and Machine, because their love is amazing. Ugh. Okay, number two, why? I have no idea. Alexander Hamilton. Oh, that's because of that uh, that movie. Okay, so you The Hamilton movie or whatever it is. Basically the wig, like the Beethoven wig and the yeah. blue coat. That's, it, that's uh, my daughter actually made me, Charlie, she made me watch it. It's actually a pretty cool movie. What is it like a musical? It's a musical, but it's um, it's all hip hop. So they took these this old, um, basically the whole story of Alexander Hamilton and the okay. whole like you know Declaration of Independence Again, and all this. Not scary at all. Not scary at all, but great movie yeah, and so it's relevant, I guess. I wouldn't wear it. Number two. That's number two. Top selling costumes. Fuck. Are you ready for number one? No. You're gonna hate it. I'm sure. The number one, top selling couple costume. By the way. Oh boy. It's a couple's costume. Oh boy. 
Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin from Tiger King. <laughs> is the number one selling costume. You are going to see hundreds of Joe Exotics and Carol Baskin. That Carol fucking Baskin. There will be one at every party you attend. Oh, yeah. For I guarantee sure. it for across sure. the world. And that's not original, folks. It's not scary. It's not scary. It has nothing to do with Halloween. I mean, Carol Baskin's kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. I mean, that bitch is kind of scary. Did you ever watch those? No, I refuse. Dude. I refuse. It just for the sheer. I know it's fucked up and funny, and I just refuse to get on that hipster train. It with was that. so like I watched it just because I was like, eh, I just knew on Netflix, like when it came mm-hmm. out. And it was just so like <laughs> it's just it's shitty. It's shitty. It's stupid. It's dumb. But yeah, people don't don't wear those costumes. So that's 2020. That's the top ten costumes that are selling right now. That just goes to show. And not one of them is a monster. Not 20- one. Well, Carol Baskin's kind of. Well, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it just sucks. And listen, we want to know. We want to know what you guys, if you guys are going, you know, to a oh, Halloween yeah. party. Upload pictures to the Facebook, please. Yeah, we want to see your Halloween costumes for sure. If you guys are doing something for Halloween, even if you're staying home with the kids, yeah. you know, should do something. It is Halloween. I know that a lot of places are like, oh, don't go trick or treating. Don't it? Which is like the most socially distanced thing you could fucking do is go. Well, here's my spin on that. Oh. My thing is, if we're going to do trick-or-treating, which we are in Ohio, I don't know where, where you guys are at, listeners, if you guys are doing it, but here where we live, all of the cities are actually doing trick-or-treating. Here's my thing. You're going to send kids with their parents to hundreds of different houses interacting. Open everything else up then. Absolutely. Open up the bars full. Open up everything then. Absolutely. You can't, you can't have this and that close and time limit on this, but then you're going to send everybody in the state door to door for hours on end, exchanging candy. Like, uh, come the fuck on. They just, right? Now listen, again, I understand the logistics and I understand the medical whatever and stuff, but at this point, and truthfully, and I mean this from all of my bottom of my fucking heart, I mean this. If you are afraid, stay the fuck home. Yeah. That's it. You have the choice. Open everything else up and stop having people fucking their businesses closing, yeah. fucking being completely destitute and broke, begging for fucking, you know, a $600 whatever. Listen, we all thing. we all know what's at stake. I know from experience. You know what I'm saying? And I know that our, here where we live, our digits have skyrocketed. We're, <laughs> we set a record on Friday, by the way. 8, I heard. 1,800 cases. I heard. So listen. Which, which, let me ask you, what do you think they're going to do? Nothing. You think they're going to shut it down anymore? No. Or? No, no. At this point, no. It's it's just it is. Everybody's going to get it at some point. I've said that from the beginning. Yeah. Whether you're going to get a mild case or a crazy case or you're asymptomatic, everybody's going to have it at some point. Unfortunately, it's like crabs. Okay. If you are one of those like germaphobe people and you're scared to death of it, stay home. Keep doing your thing. That's fine. Stay home. But open everything back up. Then. Open it the fuck. Don't up. half open this and give the kids that much and then take the take sports away from the kids, but then they can trick or treat. Right. Right. Kids can't play basketball or football, but they can go door to door in an entire neighborhood and grab candy from strangers. Oh, but you know who's that makes a lot of sense. You know who's definitely opening up shit is the uh, the sports arenas and stuff because they are allowing now. I think it's twelve thousand people in to just take it back to normal. Everybody knows what's to play. It's right. it's your choice if you want to get it and risk dying. Hey, amen, brother. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, at this point, if you're afraid of everything and you're afraid of what you the have media all the tells power you, and, yeah. and the tools to stay home, you stay. can have your groceries delivered. You can you can shelter yourself. Netflix work from home. Yeah. You know what I mean, if you can work from home, you know, whatever. So, yeah. <laughs> Are you done ranting? I am. I just <laughs> it's just like, you know, come on. Like it, it's I'm tired of seeing like all this 
rules and regulations and you can do this, but you can't do that. But then we can do all of this. It's like, no. I applaud you, my friend. 2020. It's the worst. Worst costumes. Worst year. Terrible. <laughs> and on that positive note, passengers, <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed your ride with us on Freaks and Oddities. Uh, a lot of cool shit about a lot of weird shit you know what i mean like yeah. sounded like these people like it, the thing i did find or, or i realized from this episode is that as much as well you know we talked about how they some of them are being taken advantage of and stuff like that and we did talk about a couple of those episodes it sounds like the majority of them actually did all right they did all right yeah. they got paid pretty fucking well and i didn't know that i thought they were all like just kept in cages and the coolest thing that i took away from this is that these are all legit real like real real things yeah I mean, you hear stories all the time, and growing up as a kid, you hear stories, you know, oh, the one-eyed man, blah, 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 you right. know, like, but this is actually real, legit things, and there's actually photos that we're going to post, and there's photos you can look for yourself on Google of all these things. And where are you going to be able to find the photos at, Jeff? On the bloggity blog, 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 blog. And where would that be? On the Midnight Train Podcast dot com. Dot com. That's right. So you know, we'll definitely uh, have the entire thing up there so you guys can read along. You can see the pictures of these amazing people that did amazing things, except that one dickhead that killed people and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck him. Maybe we'll put a link on supercrafts.com, too. Oh, yeah. Is that, is that what we're calling it? Supercrafts? Yes. Supercrafts. Super, it's supercrafts.com. Is, is that what we're going to call it? The entry page is just to die for. It's it's just going to be beautiful. So cute. Supercrafts with... Agena in 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 Myrtle. Oh my god! <laughs> Can I be Myrtle? Yeah. How late is it? My name is Myrtle. I want to be Beatrice. Beatrice? Yeah, that's awesome. Beatrice, uh, there it is. Super crass with Myrtle and Beatrice. Just the dabble, do you? <laughs> My mercy. Anyway, at our website, you can also buy some super sweet merchandise and, uh, you know, get all kinds of cool stuff. We've got a, some new shirts coming up. I'm actually in the middle of designing those. Pretty sure we're going to have a dun, 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 mush mouth shirt coming oh. out. Yeah. Hey, if you still want a free shirt, here's the thing. Oh, My offer go. will go till the end of October and then that's it. That's You have till the end of October to submit your video of the would you look at this? Would you, would you look at that? Just look at it. Just, <laughs> just look at it. Just look at it. And remember, over there, when you guys buy some merchandise, we will donate 10% of every sale to the National Association on Mental Illness. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental illnesses or any problems right now, and trust me, it's a fucked up time out there. We get it, as we were just talking about. <laughs> Call the NAMI helpline. That's NAMI helpline at 1-800-950-6264. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Or in crisis, text NAMI to 741741 because mental health is no joke. And of course, listeners keep asking how they can keep the steam in our engines. Well, if you like what you hear from us, consider being a producer of the show and one of those beautiful people that we love so much. Happy but, birthday, Chris. Yeah, happy birthday again to Chris McLeod out there, right? Can't believe he's 45 already. <laughs> Four, eh? They, they go so fast, eh? <laughs> so yeah, you guys can do that by heading over to the midnighttrainpodcast.com as well and clicking on the Patreon button on the very top of the page. Or you can go to patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast. Again, it's an uh, adult show, so you can't really go on there and, you know, look for it or whatever. You have to actually type it in because we say things like fuck. Yeah. Way to go, Moody. I know because words are so bad. For as little as five bucks a month, you can get all kinds of shit over there, uh, like a custom shirt, custom poster, custom sticker, uh, bonus episodes like the Day the Music Died series and way more. So if you are a diehard Midnight Train fan and you want to help produce this motherfucker, our Patreon is definitely for you. 
For those of you that would rather leave us a one-time donation, you can head over to PayPal and use the email address, the Midnight Train Podcast at gmail.com. And we thank you guys for all your support doing that. Also, you can easily like, subscribe, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And most importantly, share the Midnight Train to everyone. It only takes a couple of minutes. Right? Seriously, of your time. Like, it takes us forever to do these damn shows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it takes you a couple minutes to go and just subscribe and like and review, especially our YouTube station or our YouTube channel, which I found out our host for the podcast um, is having an issue with some kind of thing with um, um, YouTube, and that's why the, our YouTube episodes are not showing up there. Oh. So I've got to go in and actually... <laughs> manually do all that so i will be doing that so all those if you're on youtube you can do that so sign up on that as well all right so as we do at the end of the show uh, where's my drum roll <laughs> wait hold on i got i got a cold i'm trying to work that <laughs> <laughs> okay you ready yeah yeah, yeah. Three, two, one. <laughs> all right a big shout out to <laughs> to tess heidi kaylin kevin matt Diana, Christopher, Jacqueline, Katie, Michaela, Ramsey, Tamar, Tommy, Speakerbox, the Sister Skeleton. Make sure you check out the Sister Skeleton podcast. Uh, Riley, Diane, Alina, Stephanie, Julie, Laura, Cynthia, Kirsten, Dawn, Nicola, Caitlin, Chanel, Alex, Emily, Ann, Son of Vasco, Alicia, Frandipi, Danny, Melissa, Grace, Stormy, Eva, Melissa, Wayne, Victoria, Hager, Sean, uh, Chainsaw. Wow. There it is. Jigsaw, Bill, Son, Colin, Todd, David Vallow, Juan, Belen, uh, Ken and Brad over at Voodoo Vodka, Chef Kevin, Katie Brabenick, Davey, our Mexican Vato, and a very, very huge, specific superhero fucking thank you to our Patreon producers, Chad Flint, Cheryl Pierce, Chris McLeod, happy birthday again, Justin Kowalczyk, Rob Webb from the Funbox podcast, Christina Skelton, Maria Gibbs, Jessica Bartlemay, Bill Birch, and Samantha Pickworth. If you want your name to be mentioned at the end of the show, just sign up as a member on our website. It is absolutely free. Just go up there and sign. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or become a Patreon producer, and we'll make even a bigger deal about it at the very end of the show. That's right. And you also get all kinds and of And then cool when you're stuff. playing it for your friends and family, and we say your name, you're going to be like, blah, 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 check it out. Right. And? I mean, it might not be like that high pitch, but <laughs> sometimes I get excited, you know? They should. They should yeah, get excited because yeah. it's an exciting thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. So listen. As we always say about this time, Jeff, do you have anything else you want to say? Oh my God, I just I, I'm so overwhelmed. There's so many jewels There's to pick from. So many little the bedazzles. We're gonna be dazzling. We're gonna bedazzle all these pumpkins. So stay safe out it's there, passengers. It is Halloween. It is time. Boo. And always choo choo, motherfuckers. <laughs>